Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 78 of Real Blend, a podcast that wasted $160 million de-aging our faces because we don't do this on Facebook Live anymore. What did we do? Why did we do that? I mean, we I, worth great. every penny. Hey, yeah. but Martin Scorsese was directing us, so I'm totally fine with that. Have you I mean, seen what I look like without filters? <laughs> it's scary. Uh, we are uh, back with a very special interview that I'm going to throw to in a minute. Before we do that, obviously, introductions. This is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, one of three co-hosts on the Real Blend podcast. Uh, I would also like to introduce my good friend Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, how are you, sir? Hello, Sean. Thank Hi. you so much for that introduction. I don't, I don't know why my voice just cracked. Hello. Uh, great, great to talk to you. <laughs> and also uh, Jake Hamilton from Fox 32 in Chicago, who is, according to Dwayne Johnson, repping Chicago very well. How are you, sir? Repping, I know. And if Dwayne Johnson says it, then it's gospel. Is he? He's not from Chicago. No, he's, he's just not. he's from California, right? He's from Isn't California he? and then went to school in uh, went to high school in Hawaii and then uh, obviously went to college in Miami. All right. Everybody who's listening got, needs to go out of their way. Find on YouTube uh, both Kevin and Jake's interviews with uh, Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham, uh, both highly entertaining interviews on behalf of Hobbs and Shaw, uh, which is opening up in theaters this week. We are going to have also on the show uh, an interview with the director, David Leach. Uh, where he got in-depth about the making of Hobbs and Shaw, the latest uh, installment in the Fast and Furious franchise, the first spinoff. However, uh, that will not be until next week because we were treated to a very special interview before that happened. Um, Some people who follow us on social media know that we were able to sit down yesterday with the great Kevin Smith, who has uh, a film coming out uh, this fall. Mount Rushmore filmmaker for me. Really? If you have to four. break down your four. On your four. Here's the thing. So, yeah, 100%. And like, like, but now this is a personal list, correct? Sure. But, okay. No, but your, your sure. personal Mount Rushmore, Rushmore. has Kevin oh, yes. Smith on it. No question. If you, t- if you said to me right now, who are the four directors you watched the most growing up that you have in your favorite movies of all time list? It would be Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. I'm sorry. Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, Kevin Smith. Those would be the four. Like you have an entire mountainside and on this mountainside, they said that you can chisel four faces, my favorite faces into it, into the mountain that, that are people that I personally love as filmmakers. Okay. No question. Hmm, Dude, I've, I've seen Jay and Silent Bob strike back in wall rats like 35 times. By no means, obviously, am am I knocking Kevin Smith? I love Kevin Smith. I'm just not sure that, you know, on my deathbed when they said, okay, Jake, we're going to. We're going to make a new Mount Rushmore of your favorite directors. I'm not sure that Kevin Smith would make my top four. Sean, See, I have, am I crazy here? I have three, and I can't fill that fourth slot. Like, my three would be Sean Spielberg. Sean would give the fourth spot to himself. Spielberg, Hitchcock, and Scorsese. Those three are not getting knocked off. That fourth one is really hard to fill. You've got to give it to Tarantino, man. Tarantino. I, I'd put Fincher above Tarantino. Above probably. No, you are crazy. Nah. Here's the thing, though. David Fincher is one of my favorite directors of all time, too. I love Fincher. I feel like this but is if, a good blend game that we're, I agree. That we're blowing it through. We should save yeah. this for, for another right. day. Mount Rushmore blend. blend. Gabe, and even before, even before we get to uh, the Kevin Smith interview, which we are going to throw to momentarily, I want to remind people that at the top of each show, 
We always like to read reviews, so please go over to uh, the Apple iTunes page for Real Blend. Subscribe, uh, first and foremost. Go through some old episodes if you guys are new to the show and drop us a review there. We tend to read them at the top of each show. Most importantly, though, keep the conversation going on social media. Uh, We use the Real Blend Twitter account a lot to talk to uh, people who listen to the show on a regular basis. It has become, uh, you know, we use the hashtag Blender Family even too, because there's a lot of people who are communicating with each other. There are uh, text chains and communication uh, conversations and and meetups in different cities that we're not even part of anymore. It's kind of grown a little bit past. Invited to, right? Exactly. Um, So I want to let people know that you're all a huge part of this show. We obviously cannot do this show without your support. And we love the fact that the community continues to grow on social media. So uh, continue to do that for the show uh, as we continue to hopefully grow and get great interviews like the one we are about to throw to. Um, I want to give all credit to Kevin McCarthy for setting up this conversation with Kevin Smith. And he's deferring because he's humble. Um, But Kevin Smith uh, tells a story in this interview about... um, Kevin get helping to get Ben Affleck involved in Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And it's such a good story that Kevin Smith told it from the stage of Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con. And that is not a small feat. Like, <laughs> this is a, a filmmaker who Kevin just told you is on his Mount Rushmore yeah. of all time. And that dude stood up in Hall H yeah. uh, and told a crowd of thousands of people that Kevin McCarthy is important to him. And you're going to find out why in this in this interview. And we are going to talk. We are going to toss to the interview. But I, I just, you know, when it comes down to me growing up, if you were if you looked at my 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 DVD collection, it was full of Kevin Smith movies, Tarantino movies. I would even go Hitchcock, maybe over Nolan younger when I was well, yeah, younger. I mean, how many Nolan um, movies could there have been? But I mean, Nolan didn't really hit me until what? Maybe really high, late high school, early college when yeah. Memento started hitting. So um, it's an interesting question. We should do Mount Rushmore Blend at some point. But Smith has been a bigger part of my Write life. Write that down, Gabe. Than someone like <laughs> Nolan has. Like in, like in regards to my entire scope of my film love. You know what I mean? So that's kind of why I would put him on that list. Well, and hopefully that passion shines through in this conversation that we were lucky enough to have on the Real Blend podcast with Kevin Smith. Please enjoy it right now. All right. Well, this is an absolute honor. I'm Kevin McCarthy here with Jake Hamilton and Sean O'Connell. We're for the Real Blend podcast, joined by one of our all-time favorite filmmakers, Mr. Kevin Smith, uh, obviously here to talk about Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Kevin, thank you for joining the show, man. So happy to be here, man. When uh, You know uh, as well as I do, Kev, that I, when I, I cornered Kevin at the Endgame premiere, um, and I was very excited to see Endgame. But I was so excited, more excited to see Kevin because, like, I knew this story that I wanted to tell him. And I I couldn't wait to watch his expression change. So when I saw him, I was like, dude, and I pulled him to the side (laughs) and then downloaded that Affleck story and just watched his expression change. Man, it was delightful. Uh, Thank God Endgame was great as well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, there's a great photo of like Kevin pulling me aside at the premiere as he's talking about, and you can just literally see my face dropping. Meanwhile, 
Kevin Smith and I are standing there. So I'm standing there across from one of my favorite filmmakers ever while every single member of the Avengers is walking by. I mean, like we're talking like Chris <laughs> Evans, Robert Downey Jr. It's like, so my mindset is like, I'm being told this amazing news and then we're having the Avengers walk by at the biggest movie of all time. Uh, and I'll never forget because Kevin and I kept talking and talking and then Harley Quinn came up to us and she was like, Dad, we got to go into the movie. We got to go into the movie at this point. One part I think you don't understand too, uh, Kevin, is that when Kevin McCarthy wants to get a photo with a celebrity, uh, that becomes his <laughs> laser focus. And the man, the man was wearing a Captain America suit, so he desperately wanted Evans, and you were distracting him from that. No, no, not, I feel like I threw about. him off of his quest, man. <laughs> well, you know what was funny is I, I actually tried to get a photo with. That was my goal was to get a photo with Kevin when I saw him. And then I had no idea Kevin was going to pull me aside and say, here's this story. So, Kevin, um, for our audience, uh, not everybody who listens to our show watches every single interview uh, online. So Happily. I know you've told the story a zillion times, but uh, do you mind just going through it uh, again? Just kind of how what happened and, and, and the time frame of it all, because <coughs> the Affleck joining the, the cast didn't happen until midway through or towards the end of production. Yeah, it happened very late in the production. Um, we were about two weeks into making reboot when uh jordan the producer jordan monsanto jason's wife um she goes uh have you seen this and she showed me a clip on twitter and it was uh kevin mccarthy talking to ben at the triple frontier junket and kevin you know historically whenever he does interviews with folks who've been in the cast of my films Ben or Matt or, or anybody, he he'll sometimes, most of the time, he'll throw out a view askew reference or something like that. It's always so great for me. You've been seeing those. You've been seeing those over the years. Oh, my whole life, of course. I see everything. I, I you know, <laughs> I, 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 I you, there was a period in my life where I was very proud of the fact that I read all my press, and then, so, you know, at one point, the internet tried to shame me for being aware of my press. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I've been doing this 25 years. I think I know what I'm doing. And I, I read everything. It's like, we don't do this in a vacuum. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, sure. that's why film criticism hurts when it, it's negative. Cause you're like, Oh man, you want everyone to like what you do. And part of that pursuit means that you have to take it all in. I know a lot of my contemporaries and peers and the people who are better at this job than me. I've met a lot of them who are just like, you read that shit. Why? I don't read that <laughs> shit, but I'm like, that's. I mean, I, before I was a filmmaker, I was a film fan and entertainment journalism was my lifeline. You know what I'm saying? Like we didn't sure. have an internet when I was a kid. We, we you had the art section in a newspaper. Um, we didn't have, you know, like 24 seven news cycle. You had entertainment tonight, like once, you know, a night if you were lucky or something like that. So I always loved entertainment journalism. And even though I became, uh, part of the entertainment structure that doesn't go away. So I, I read it all. I see it all. And anytime, you know, that pops up, uh, Kev interviews somebody and says like, Hey man, like, uh, when he talks to Matt, he'll be like, have you started goodwill hunting, you know, two hunting season yet? And, and <laughs> you know, Matt who makes a thousand movies and like, <laughs> hasn't probably thought of that movie in a while, always gets a smile on his face where he's like, Oh, right on. I, that's right. I, re, I remember that. And also like <laughs> any subject who's getting, getting interviewed, if somebody starts in a positive, kind, 
um, uplifting, uh, sentimental, warm way, you're, you know, Kevin's no dummy. You're going to get a great interview. Like that's, that's just point of fact, right? So, you know, you're talking on a junket for those who don't follow this sort of thing. You know, sometimes the people, the talent, quote unquote talent, they're talking to a hundred people a day. Different people coming through in cycles of like, you got three, four minutes, say your shit and get the fuck out. And they cycle people through and stuff. So to, to, to make any sort of impact in three or four minutes means something. And Kev has always taken that moment, you know, and mind you, when you get three or four minutes, every second counts. That's why it always even impressed me more. I'm like, this poor motherfucker, he should be asking one more question about whatever it is they're working on, but he always like throws in this little nod to my stuff. So I've always loved that. And so when she said, have you seen this? And I saw it was Kevin. I instantly knew, oh, he's going to say something about the movies and oh my God, it's Ben. So I was like, oh, this will be interesting. And so I didn't know what it was going to be. So Ben, you know, the Kevin starts by going, hey, have they called you? They're in the middle of reboot. Have they called you for reboot yet? And we didn't. We never called him. I never wrote him into the script because I hadn't spoken to him in eight years. Like, I didn't even think we had a friendship. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked about it in the press and stuff and, like, never heard from him. Didn't After the heart attack, didn't hear from him. So I just assumed we were done. So when, you know, I was working on Reboot, I was never like, let me bring Holden into the mix because I knew I didn't have access to that toy anymore. So it was never part of the proceeding so much so that like, you know, we follow the structure of Jay and Silent Bob strike back fairly closely, but we had to deviate early on because, you know, it was the boys went to Brody's and then they went to Holden's. They got on the road. So in this, they go to Brody's and then he does this job of both of the scenes from strike back as Brody and as kind of Holden. And then they start their mission. So we started making a movie with no Holden scene in it whatsoever. And so Kevin asked Ben that and Ben says, no, they haven't. And I'm available or something like that. So very positive, very encouraging. Certainly not him going like, fuck them all. I hate those. <laughs> so instantly everyone in our world, you know, is just like, wait a second. Like Jordan, my wife, Jen, Liz, our other producer, even Jason was like, you should reach out to him. And I was like, come on. Like, you know, you guys understand. That's just some nice shit to say on a junket. It doesn't behoove that guy to, like, turn around to Kevin and be like, fuck Viewskew. I haven't spoken to those fuckers in years because he's a pro and he's there to sell his show. And so fucking, you know, there's a game and, and you'd imagine he he's playing the game, just being like, oh, they haven't called me, you know, because he's not going to fucking go into a 10 minute explanation of like, I haven't spoken to him in eight years and blah, blah, blah. So for a week, we just kept doing our thing. They kept saying, you should call him or reach out to him. I said, no, that's just some nice shit to say to Junket. And then like after a week, they kept nudging me. And, you know, I was like, um, all right, you know what? I'm going to tweet him because I don't know if any of the numbers I have work. So I'm going to tweet him. And I, you know, wrote up this, this tweet. I pull it from the phone, but I can't see it because we're using the phone. Um, but it was 
Let me see. I, what happens if I do this? I just don't want to lose you guys altogether. <laughs> this was this was the Conan uh, uh, the Barbarian uh, tweet, right? Yeah, that you, like, basically, you, like, like you, I wrote, he drafted it, was a, it. A tweet where I was like, you know, I, I I said, hey man, we're all having fun back here in the past. Wish you were here, but you know, post heart attack, I don't wish for anything anymore. I just ask. So, do you want to come down and play? Like I, I said, I I paraphrase. Uh, King Osric from Conan the Barbarian and I say, you know, and I put a variation of a speech where I said the, you know, the um, there comes a time when the the jewels cease to sparkle and the gold loses its luster and the throne room becomes prison and all an old man, old director, I said, uh, wants to do is make pretend with his old friends. And uh, so I was going to tweet that and Right before I did, I, I showed Jordan. She's like, don't do that. That's embarrassing. Don't tweet them publicly. She's like, try one of your numbers you got in your phone. I was like, I, I, I can't imagine any of these still work. So I picked the first one. I texted. Um, is it, I said, hey. And he wrote back, hey, with a question mark. I said, this still you? And he says, it is. And I said, who is this? And then he wrote, your father. And then <laughs> instantly that sounded like Ben. Like that's, you know, I was like, that sounds like Affleck. So he wrote back, I wrote BA question mark. He said, yeah, who's this? And then I, I texted back, this might be where the conversation ends. <laughs> and then he put question mark. And then I wrote KS and he is a long beat. And he goes, Kevin. Oh, and I said, yeah. And so right there, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> or once he has confirmation, it's me. Maybe you just don't write back. Or he fucking writes the speech he's been waiting to say <laughs> for eight fucking years, right? Like, I've been waiting for this, you son of a bitch. And instead, he just writes, how the hell are you? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm good. I said, I was just about to tweet you this, but I'll send it here. And I sent, has sent him the thing. And then I waited and then the little dots came up and I was, Oh my God. Cause you know, you got to realize I hadn't reached out in a long time. I, I didn't, I thought we weren't friends anymore. I didn't want to confirm it. You know what I'm saying? It's one thing yeah. to think like my old friend, he probably don't like me no more. It's another thing to have him go, I'm your old friend and I don't like you anymore. You yeah, know what I'm saying? And that's heartbreaking. I don't want that confirmation. So I kind of mm -hmm. lived in, in, you know, in ignorance, ignorance being bliss. So, you know, I'm kind of waiting and wondering what he's going to say. And then he writes back. Finally, I see the little dots come up uh, and he writes back. Um, so, was it so telling you still think of yourself as a king? <laughs> <laughs> and you know i is this classic app like i laughed and then he said i would love to i would love to come down and play old man and he's like where, where what are we doing um and i just broke down crying mm. i didn't even call him we just kept texting back and forth for all i knew it could have been you know, not Ben Affleck and some guy doing <laughs> a great impression of him by a text. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you, at that point, I didn't care. Like, it was such a wonderful feeling. You got to understand, like, I hadn't spoken to him in eight years. And this is a cat that, you know, we all, the world knows him as Ben Affleck and shit. But, like, this this was 
one of the people that like I built my entire career with. He wasn't there for clerks, but he was there for mall rats forward and some of my best stuff I did with him. And we were like kids together and we dreamed together. And then like, you know, his shit took off in a big, bad way and stuff like that. And after all this time, I, I always felt like, you know, man, like, didn't it mean anything? Like, I understand, like, you know, he had <coughs> other chapters and, and like reinvented as a director and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I figure less prominently in his mythology than he figures prominently in my, in my, uh, uh, mythology. Right. So for me, you know, I, I always felt like, ah, oh, shit, I guess it didn't really mean anything. Like, cause even, you know, you never check back in, never, you know, like be like, how's Muse? Nothing. Like, I was like, wow. Like as much as I dwell on the past, famous, successful people live in the present and the future. Like it's true. And you look back at like, you know, and I'm different. I've always been kind of different in that way. I'm not certainly not saying better by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a different kind of cat. I'm the filmmaker that's come out and explain himself all the time. Like Fincher, he makes a movie. He don't say shit. Like he just puts it out there and it speaks for itself. The work speaks for itself. You know, even Quentin's out there on the press circuit now, but he ain't explaining once upon a time in Hollywood. You know, he's just out there doing a victory lap, collecting his propers. But I'm the guy that will always go out and explain shit. I'm the guy that's still talking about his first movie and stuff. Most successful people, you know, they only look back when there's some big anniversary, but like clerks is such a big part of my life that it never leaves the conversation, even though I've done a bunch of other stuff. So in my head and heart, I was like, well, I guess it's not like that for him. And I thought we were so similar, but I guess when you're really successful, you don't think about the past that much and you live in the present or the future. So to have him like right back and, and to be in a conversation with him. And it was like, you know, he, he hadn't missed a beat. Like for him, he stepped out of time eight years back and did his thing. And then when he reengaged in the conversation, it was like no time had passed. It's a phenomenon that you see the older one gets in life when you wind up talking to people that you haven't spoken to in years. You know, you've heard it before. Like, oh, we picked up right where we left off. It's a, it's a wonderful human phenomenon. There wasn't this like, well, what the fuck have you been doing for, you know, eight years or where the fuck have you been or anything like that? It was just suddenly the conversation started again. So I said, uh, Hey man, do you want you, if you want to come play, we're down in New Orleans, like we're shooting this thing. And he was like, all right, I'll come down. So he was coming down. We didn't know what he was going to do. I'd, we'd cast everything. We were like literally at this point, like a week and change out from the end of the movie. So every part had been accounted for. So at one point I was like, going to pull him in for like a villain in the fake blunt man movie. <laughs> and, um, and then I was like, you know, I asked him, I was like, would you do that? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so I went to sleep that night when I woke up in the morning, I was like, man, I can't bring that dude all the way down here just to, to, you know, fucking play a goofy villain. Like if he's making the trip, like maybe he should do Holden, you know? And I was like, I could do a scene in the third act where the boys are at the con. There was a moment in the script 
where, you know, Jay sees something and that triggered the turn and suddenly we were in the third act. Um, and it would have worked. It, it worked enough to get us money and, and into production. Like everyone was like, oh, that's fine. But suddenly I was like, well, what if they run into Holden and Holden's responsible for the turn and stuff? So at that point, I reached out to him. I was like, would you mind if I wrote you as Holden? And he was like, I would love that. So I took a stab at it and wrote this eight page sequel to Chasing Amy. And then I sent it back to him and I was like, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And he said, he wrote back, he was just like, this is more dialogue than I've done in my last three movies combined. Because <laughs> at one point, part of the eight pages was a two-page monologue where he has to sum up not just the movie, but my entire fucking life. Oh, my God. Because the movie's pretty autobiographical and, and while being not autobiographical at all. But at the same time, it's the post-heart attack movie. And, you know, for me, I'm like, well, maybe the heart attack comes back. Maybe it don't. This time I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to make sure that this movie says everything I needed to say in life and stands as my final testimony and shit like that. So not only was it eight pages, two pages of a monologue that has to bring the movie together and stand as like a living eulogy in case I drop fucking dead. A speech that's like this explains who he is and why he's done what he's fucking done. So I was hoping, you know, I'm not the guy I used to be real hardcore and dictatorial about um, doing script as written, like scripted lines, giving line readings and shit. But that was a long time ago. Now, you know, I've more than made up for lost time realizing you can get a lot more by letting people do whatever they want and you're going to get credit for it anyway. So mm -hmm. like, I'm, I, you know, I remember Chris Rock told me that on dogma, he ad libs that line, where uh, Rufus says, knew him, when he talks about Jesus, knew him, and he says, he owes me 12 bucks, but he doesn't say he owes me. He, he says in a very Chris Rock-specific way. And I was like, oh, what a great line. I said, I can't use it in the movie. And he goes, why? I was like, because how am I supposed to credit that? Like, written by Kevin Smith, except that one line by Chris Rock. And he's like, you don't have to credit me at all. Whatever, like, it's your movie. Like, just, but if you think it's funny, leave it in there and stuff. You get it for free. You're going to get credit for a Chris Rock joke. And at that point, I was like, that's smart. So I started <laughs> letting ad-libbing in a lot more. So, But I haven't worked with Ben really since that period that I've been way more free with ad-libbing. So when he showed up um, to work that day, first off, like I hadn't seen him in a long time since like the Argo screening at the, at the uh, Director's Guild. You know, I'd seen him in the press, but I hadn't seen him in real life. And it's crazy how... Like one of the, you know, I fucking collapsed in his arms and cried while I was hugging him and shit. But one wow. of the first things I said was like, did you go overseas and break your legs and to get taller? <laughs> like he was so fucking tall, way he's taller. Batman. He's Batman. Yeah. Now. I mean, it's so crazy. He's like, he is, he's a fucking superhero. So much taller than I remember. Like my head was on his chest. Like it, it was just so, I, I was so taken aback by that. And the guy that I used to hang out with and made Chasing Amy with was lanky. He was tall, but he was lanky and stuff. But this motherfucker, he's built like Batman and shit. So he's tall and powerful. I felt so protected in his arms. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. Um, so then we we chit-chatted and whatnot. And, I, you know, I was like, hey, man, so th this is our last day of shooting, mind you. We're picking him up on the very last day. 
and we've got so many other things to do. And we just added this eight page scene, but it's like, nobody's bitching because everyone's like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. We had no idea this was ever going to happen. So, you know, I was like, hey man, bear with us. Like it's an eight page scene and, and, you know, we're, 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 we've got a bunch of other things to do. And so, uh, we went for our first blocking rehearsal. And if you don't know what that is, that's, uh, you know, everybody stands around and, and you're, you're going to stand here and then you're going to walk in here. It's your very first laying out of the scene and you're figuring out where people are standing in the physical space when they're going to be acting opposite one another. So it's me and Ben and Jason and Joey, Joey Adams. Cause when Ben said yes, I reached out to her and I was like, Hey man, are you free? And she was like, I was waiting for this call. <laughs> she goes, am I coming out of a movie theater wow. again? And I said, no, I said, we're going to do something a little more. And she said, what? And I said, uh, we're, I'm bringing, bringing you back as a listen. We're going to do an eight page sequel to chasing Amy. Oh my God. And she goes, how are you going to do that without Ben? And I said, Ben's in. And she was oh. like, no. Wow. Uh, I said, yeah. She goes, Oh my God, send me the pages. So I sent her the pages. Um, she was like signed on and ready and stuff. Um, so there's her, Ben, me and Jason. I cleared the set, not in a like shitty, like everyone get the fuck out. But I was like, Hey man, we haven't done this since 1997. All of us together. I said, so just for the sake of the 22 years, we haven't done this. Can you guys just give us a few minutes to go through this by ourselves? That's the way we used to do it. And everyone was real cool. And they went and waited in the hallway. So there's just me and the kids. And we start the block rehearsal and Joey's got her sides. That's the miniature version of the script, you know, with the lines on it. Jason's got his sides. Ben has no sides. I had sides, which is stupid because I'm silent Bob and I don't speak. It's still, <laughs> even I have my sides. Ben has no sides. So I thought they just skipped him. And I was like, you want my sides? And he's like, I think I got it. I was like, all right. And so we started rehearsal. And God damn it, if he didn't fucking know it, word for word, line for line, um, it, it blew my hair back. Like, he had memorized everything. The boy who got off that plane in New Orleans was the same boy I made Chasing Amy with. He wasn't the guy that made Argo uh, and won, you know, Oscar glory and attention. He's not, he, he didn't come to me as the guy who was like, I have ideas. He came off the plane like, this is how we used to do it, right? So... Here we are doing it, you know, and I didn't have the heart to tell him like, oh, man, I haven't done that in fucking years. Like <laughs> I, I told him after the her first rehearsal, I was like, you memorized all of this shit. And he said, yeah, that's how we roll. And I said, dude, I was hoping to get half of this at best. Um, the fact that, you know, it all I was like, that's incredibly touching to me. And he's like, wait a second. They don't know their lines. Like, <laughs> well, no, they, they do. But you've got all the heavy lifting, but <clears throat> you didn't have to get this close. But he did. He could have delivered that monologue backwards. Like if I was just like, hey, man, do it backwards in reverse. Like I kept adding lines because like, you know, periodically, once I get what I get from the page, then I'm like, all right, let's fucking play. And one of my favorite things to do with him back in the day was throw out lines. He's a great ad libber. He loves curveballs. He makes your scene more fun. As a writer, he's uh, I appreciate him and his ad libs because he's like Seth Rogen. He ad libs within the movie. And suddenly you're getting this like fan fiction version 
of what you've written. It's a it's a real thrill. Oh, yeah. And it's also if you ad lib within the movie, it's all usable. Like if you're just trying to make people on set laugh, sometimes you're breaking character. But both of those cats, they ad lib within the within the plot and it's fucking magic. So I was throwing lines at him and stuff to add. I'm like, dude, throw this in, add this. And it was amazing. I hadn't worked with him in years, but he would reset to the top and go back through the thing. That was his process, man. So I got, even though we did two takes and most of his performances cut from the first take, those takes were chunky because he kept resetting. So I got a lot of bites at the apple, but oh my God, he delivered it like pitch perfect. Like, you know, when I was writing it, I hadn't written for him in years. And when I was writing it, one of my favorite characters to ever write for was Holden because I know Ben's inflections and I know the things that like he's strong on and stuff and words that just sometimes they're magical words. You put them in a motherfucker's mouth and they sing. <laughs> so I hadn't done it in years. And I, you know, I wrote it fingers crossed going like, if we get half of this, I'll be happy. And then to hear him like it's it, at one point he uses the term horse shit. I think I cut it out of the movie. But, you know, he did that in Chase Game. He was like, come on, it's a bunch of horse shit. And I stole that from real life. Like whenever Ben says horse shit, he makes it sing like in a very negative way. So I wrote it into the script and like he fucking picked up on it and delivered it pitch perfect. It was absolutely magical. And the scene, you know, Kevin's seen it. He can account. It's like honestly probably the best scene in the movie. Carries not just the whole message of the movie, but the whole message of my entire life and career and stuff. And it almost didn't exist. And it only exists because Kevin bothered to ask Kevin McCarthy there, bothered to ask that question, bothered to start his his interview, bothered to waste 10 seconds of his precious time with a pleasantry related to me and my world. Not only did that open the door to get us a guy who improved the movie, who elevated the movie. That gave me my friend back. There was a gaping fucking hole in my heart. If I want to be really, uh, you know, romantic and, and emo about it, probably had something to do with the heart attack. Like, that's a big part of me that was gone, man. Like, and not accessible, you know, through why? Because I was too proud to reach out or whatever, too scared to have confirmation that, oh, he don't give a fuck about you no more. That was then. This is now. And I knew why he was mad at me. You know, I was the storyteller. I told so many fucking Ben stories. <clears throat> a lot of them I found flattering. Some of them weren't my stories to tell. You know, and periodically he would be like, he'd bring it up. And it was always kind of weird for me where I'm like, oh, my God, did that did that hurt your feelings? And he was like, no, it didn't. He's gone. But I think it's really telling that you only now just thought about the repercussions of telling that story publicly. And you know, over time that just gave him reason to be like, why bother? You know, again, he's never said it, but I assumed that's why he was just like, Kevin's a liability to know. Like I t if I fucking tell him anything, he's on a stage at some college or on some fucking, you know, comedy club relating it back and stuff. So I made my own bed and I had to live in it. And I had to know that like, if my friend didn't like me anymore, it was because of me. And I never wanted to reach out and have that confirmed. But thanks to Kevin right there, the other Kevin, the good Kevin. Um, <laughs> he and, and just taking that moment. He didn't have to. Could have been selfish with his time. And granted, like, 
you know, it, it's it's of course it benefits Kevin to be friendly at the top of an interview, but he could have been friendly in a thousand ways. He could have rocked an Argo fucking joke, and that would have made Ben feel, <laughs> you know, just as fine as well. But or a reindeer game. Or a ra- joke. oh my <laughs> god, I'll, yeah. you know, go deep cuts with it. But the fact that he said what he said not just changed my movie, changed my life. Like that's that's everything. So I've been out. I couldn't wait to tell that story. The first person I could tell the story to was Kevin. And then I had to wait until the trailer hit. And I didn't even know if we were going to be able to tell it then. When they put together the trailer, though, they included a shot of Ben. And I was like, are we doing this? Are we including Ben in the trailer? And they had sent it to his folks. And his folks were like, yeah, he approves. It's all good. So I was like, well, shit, man, if they're going to see him in the trailer, I don't have to wait till the movie to tell the story. I get to tell people how it happened because I wanted to give Kevin props. I know I just a minute ago said, like, I fucking tell personal stories and get in trouble. This ain't a personal story, I think, that Ben would mind being told. You know what I'm saying? And also, praise where praise is due. Like, Kevin deserves that credit. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a thankless fucking gig. You guys all know entertainment journalism. You know, most people are just like, fucking entertainment journalism. It's fucking entertainment. It means not, why don't you cover politics? As if that's fucking helpful. As if that would make anyone <laughs> feel good right now. But like, this is the shit. You know how many people wake up and look at this shit because it makes them feel good. I, you know, you don't want to wake up and read one more fucking horrible thing about the real world. You want to wake up and read somebody be like, did you fuckers know that this person's going to be in this fucking movie? That That's... That makes people feel fucking good. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the Lord's work in my book. And I've always loved entertainment journalism because it was always a bridge to a world that I loved. For the same reason you guys write about it, that's the same reason I would always consume it. And to then get to a moment in my life where something I've always enjoyed and always interacted with, I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I read the front page, you know, Google News all the way down. But I save entertainment for last because that's where I'm going to feel the best. That's where I can wallow and be like, oh, fuck. Because even if there's quote unquote bad news in that world, it's not bad. It's not like, you know, fucking the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's like, oh, man, they canceled another Netflix show. (laughs) So so it's always been there for me. It's always been something I've interacted with and enjoyed both as a lay person and as a professional. But fuck, man, if it didn't come through for me and and give me my friend back, man. That's, that's powerful. You know, that's, that's everything. That's, you never know who you're reaching with the stories that you tell. And that little moment, that little story that Kevin told changed my art, changed my life. So I couldn't wait to share that story. I mean, that's, that's, that, that trickles down in such a positive way because then people go like, yeah, man, like, you never know what comes of something. And then the people who hear the story, like, you know, who aren't in, like, who who come to the story, not from the entertainment journalist point of view, but from the person who's consuming the entertainment journalism, go like, fuck, I'm going to reach out to this one or that one or this person who I haven't spoken to in a long time because that story's heartwarming. Like, fucking people loved that story. Like, after Comic-Con, I saw so many people interacting with that fucking story and stuff. And that all, none of that happens. I mean, even boil it down to something as basic as this. Like, you know, I'm a storyteller. And so I'll be telling that story probably for the next six months of my life. What story would I be telling 
if Kevin hadn't asked Ben that fucking question. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. That's everything. So, yeah, I was well, born happy. It's to- beautiful, Kevin, but it's made him pretty insufferable around these parts. <laughs> I know. Oh, I would imagine. What are imagine. you talking about? I, 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 I'm like getting teary-eyed here, man. I'm sorry. It's just like this is so surreal. I and mean, people know that how big Kevin, how big of a fan I am of Kevin's work. But, uh, all right, Sean, you were going to go ahead with a question. Sorry. Uh, I, Kevin, I would, you sort of brought up how Holden is um, almost almost you. You know, it is autobiographical, and a lot of his words come through. Very much. Uh, like, in terms of Dante is the one that, you know, Dante was definitely based on me before I made Clerks. But Holden is me with a career uh, and was in Chasing <laughs> Amy and still stands as as in Reboot as well. He gets to be, like, of all my characters, he's the one that's kind of closest to me. Then I want to pull a very specifically worded answer, a question for you. Please do. Uh, as you circle around a Reboot, and, and I think a lot of friends uh, and fans would like to know why in God's name, Kevin, would you want to keep writing about characters whose central preoccupation <laughs> is weed, dick, and fart jokes? Oh, my God. Delivered almost in the same patois. If you're in this business long enough. Uh, you say so many things that come back to haunt you. Um, <laughs> sometimes you say them in a movie. Sometimes you just say them in an interview. Somebody like sent me a a tweet the other day of, of an interview I gave a long time ago where I was like, you know, if, if I'm still flipping around my baseball cap at age 40, leaning against a wall, just kill me. <laughs> um, and, you know, the thing is, it helps when you, you believe those things when you say them and stuff. And even when that line with... Ben's line in, in Strike Back, I, I d- absolutely felt that way when I said it. And it's, it's also a way to guard oneself against the criticism of others, right? Right. Like it's, it's stealing the thunder before <laughs> they can strike you. But now I've figured out how to use those characters to like in a way that I never figured how to use them before. Like even when I look at them in their own movie, Strike Back, I still didn't know how to use them that properly and after 25 years like i know how to use i know how to deploy jay and bob as an effective weapon like as a weapon weaponized to make you laugh but now i i can weaponize them to give you the feels and the older i get that's all i care about like i I, i'm not i'm this ain't braggy but i know i can make you laugh some people not everybody i'm not saying i'm fucking ricky gervais but i know like i can make people laugh i've been doing that for 25 years but, and some people know that about me, like the people that are still interested, like, oh, he still makes me laugh. Some, a lot of people have jumped ship and shit, but the ones that are still around, they get it. They get the transaction, what we're going to, what we're going to exchange, you know, when we get together. But what I've loved more than anything else in the last like 10 years is leaning into the feels of it all. Cause that's who I've always been. And, you know, in the early, in my twenties, I had to wear a very cynical character up front because I made clerks. You know what I'm saying? Like, but when you talk to me, I would always talk like very thoughtfully as a writer and people would be like, I don't get it. You made clerks. Why why aren't you funny? So I had to figure out how to present myself in life in as my career and whatnot. And for the longest time, like, you know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't get into the heart of it all. But then another entertainment journalism moment. Uh, it was uh, Matt Zoller 
Sites. Yeah. Uh-huh. Great he writer. used to write for the New York Press back in the day. Um, and they did a piece, he did a piece of review of Mallrats that, um, wasn't, it wasn't very positive, but it reviewed <laughs> Mallrats and kind of retro reviewed clerks as well. And he said this thing that changed who I became as a storyteller. He said, like, um, it really helped me write Chasing Amy. He said, uh, in clerks, you know, there's a hockey game on the roof. Um, Sometimes a filmmaker includes a hockey game on the roof not to to uh, depict some deeper meaning of life. They just simply like hockey. <laughs> and then he said about Mallrats, he was like the characters wear their hearts on their sleeves, and they you know, but unfortunately, their their garment is you know cynical, but they will try to wear their hearts on their sleeves. And essentially, it was like, you know, the guy should lean more into his heart. Like, why is he trying to be such a hard guy? And that helped. I mean, I don't get to chasing Amy kind of without that. So at this stage in my life, you know, now I'm fucking midlife, beyond midlife and stuff, and having almost fucking died and having a 20-year-old kid and all that shit. Like, I'm all about the feels. Like, that's, I'm happy to try to make you laugh. But even when you come see me at a Q&A, I mean, even the, the comedy special I did, the the last one it's all laughs but the last like five minutes is like hey man like if you like what i do you can do this and you're a storyteller too and you just want to impart shit to people and like and you know help them start their journey or give them what thank you what what they gave you you know a, a way of support and stuff like that so for me like the feels is everything um i i you know here, this is the easier way to say it. With the advent of Twitter and social media, everybody is funny. You know what I'm saying? Like anybody yeah. can be funny. And yeah. that's beautiful. Like, and I've loved watching that. Like people who, who are not trained professionals or ever showed any interest in a career in comedy can write the most devastatingly funny fucking things. Mm. So in that world, you know, we're all funny, right? So it's tough to really, you know, I could be funny using my shit. Like, hey, I'm funny with Jay and Silent Bob. But, you know, I guarantee you somebody could write a tweet, make you laugh harder than my entire movie fucking combined. Because mm -hmm. now we're in the democratized age of everybody has a voice thanks to social media. So in that world, it's tougher to compete, right? I'm not, I'm not going to be funnier than like other people. I'd just be funny as I can be. Yeah. But what I can do that I can like, that others can't or, you know, yet or do like I do is go for the feels, man. And, and kind of hit you with the, the reels and the feels, which sounds so rhymy and shitty, but it's very <laughs> true. Like that, that to me, I'll bring you in with the laughs, but I'm, I want to keep you there and keep you coming back by giving you something to feel about something to think about. I can't think of another filmmaker who can transition from a donkey show to making me cry in a jail cell with uh, with uh, <laughs> Jeff and Brian. I mean, like that. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do tonally, which is kind of what you're saying there, which is interesting. One of the proudest moments of my career was when Quentin. I showed Quentin and Robert Clerks Two at the old office, and we did a video. I think there's a video of it somewhere online. Oh, and cool. Quentin goes, he's going. Do you know how good you have to be at the job? In order to like put the emotional crescendo of the movie in the middle of a fucking donkey show, <laughs> <laughs> we should have put that on the DVD. 
<laughs> yeah, that should be the quote for the movie. It's, it really it's, I, truly. Uh, well, we have to pause because uh, in true Real Blend fashion, anytime someone name drops like that, uh, they get called out on it. So when Kevin just casually name drops <laughs> Quentin and Robert, uh, I want to call him out for that. That's uh, that was, To be fair, it's a, thir- it's a 13-year-old story, not a current reference. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay, go ahead. Our audience uh, will appreciate it, believe me. For sure. I So I came into 2019, as all of us did, knowing that we were going to say goodbye to a lot of characters that we loved, whether it's... Uh, a lot of characters in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe or Game of Thrones or I was a big Deadwood fan so I know I was saying goodbye to those guys and then obviously uh, Luke and and the Star Wars gang coming up in a couple of months Um, I don't think I was until I heard someone reference Reboot as your end game I was not really I I was not emotionally prepared to say goodbye to characters in the View Askew universe like emotionally going into Reboot how ready should I be to like say goodbye to another set of characters that I love. Um, nobody dies that you care about. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, let me see. It's, who was it? I'll drop another name. Adam Goldberg came over to watch the movie. That was his line. Yeah. And he was, that's game. what he said. He was like, God damn it. Yep. He's going like, you, you got to do something that only Marvel could do because you've got a deep bench of characters from multiple movies that we care about. He's going, so like when you open the world again, it really opens. But then when it ends, like there's no loose str- strings. Like if this was the last view skew movie I ever made, it would work like, you know, and probably should be, but I know I'm stupid. I'll keep going. But uh it, it really has a sense of like, Oh, this, this is it. This is the, the last chapter. Um, so, but you don't have to worry. Nobody dies. It, it, it is, <laughs> it's very like, uh, you know, it, it's a real, like, how did I, I described it to somebody. It's like, it's the best high school reunion you never went to because you're seeing everybody that you spent your childhood with and it's nothing but fun. And, and you get to meet their kids. Like that's kind of fun too. You know, Kevin mentions Adam uh, and I was uh, Kevin was so nice uh, at the endgame premiere to invite me to go over to his house and watch this film, which was already mind blowing enough to hear the uh, the story in general. But to have Kevin invite me over um, to watch the movie and Adam and I sat on the couch. I want to give Kevin credit because he brought over like a bowl of like uh, hippies. Like they were like these um, like um, the the veggie uh, snacks that you gave us. Yes, a lot of vegan snacks. It was amazing. And Kevin went, I think you said you were going to go downstairs and eat some hummus while we were watching the movie. I was. Um, and, <laughs> and so we watched the film and I was sitting next to Adam. Adam had no idea that Ben was in the movie. So I'm sitting there. I didn't know that Adam didn't know that. And we're just like dying laughing. Keep in mind, to give people some perspective, this was crazy. We're in this room where Kevin has the movie on his computer, on the edit machine, essentially, um, connected to his TV through an HDMI cable. And that's how we're watching this film, which was just surreal to begin with. Um, but Kevin, this is something I was curious about. So the Damon sequence was obviously already part of the script. Uh, he's playing Loki. Now, was there ever any, ever any conversation with Matt about, hey, what is, how, how should I reach out to Ben? Like prior to our story happening, but with Damon, when you shot with him, was there any talk of like, hey man, did Ben go, or did uh, Matt go, hey, Call Ben or what's going on with Ben? Maddie was a pickup day um, oh. in post where we got Chris Hemsworth oh. as well. <coughs> Chris oh, was okay. working on 
uh, end game and all the press and, and I guess other things. So we said, Hey, we'll grab you in post. Um, not, he doesn't have, you don't have to make the trip down to New Orleans. Same thing with Matt. We'd reached out to Matt, but we hadn't heard back from Matt. Um, cause he uh, went like, uh, like he took his family away for a couple months. He was in Australia. So I guess his agent was like, yeah, man, I soon I can't get a hold of him and I know he'll want to do this. So like just save him a space. And so we finished the movie. Um, you know, shooting. And then all of a sudden, like we got the call going like Matt's back, he's ready. <laughs> and we were like, Oh shit. Like, all right, well, <laughs> you know, we're done and there's nothing left. I was like, but you know, I can't like, if he's free and he wants to be here, the, you know, anybody returning from Jay and silent Bob strike back is, is going to be good. So I looked at the script and there was something I had to create a new scene for Matt, but it replaced something that we hadn't yet done. I don't want to give too much away, uh, but cause the, but, yeah. Um, but so it, it, it was, it was kind of, it was a, I, again, I'm trying, I'm desperately trying not to spoil it. It is, <laughs> it was just, it was a, it, he, he became an incredibly famous band aid in the movie because we were able to like jump from one scene to another on, on his wings, literally. Um, (laughs) So, so, but I didn't know that I was going to use him as Loki. I was trying to figure out how to use him in this other capacity. And at first we were going to use him as Matt Damon because he played Matt Damon and Jay and Silent Bob strike back as well. (laughs) Um, And so I was telling Jen, my wife, and she was like, why don't you use him as Loki? You never talk about using him as Loki. And I was like, well, I can't use him as Loki. Loki died. And she's like, yeah, in a movie. And I was like, oh, oh, you're right. I was like, I can do anything I want, can't I? So suddenly I was like, that would be cool, man. Because like the movie reboot has a bunch of sequels to all the other movies in it. So you follow up on Clerks, you follow up on Mallrats, Chasing Amy. And we referenced Dogma, but not flat out sequelize it so suddenly this gave yeah. me a chance to be like oh my god i could actually do it with dogma as well and 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 loki so i when i talked to matt i was like hey man do you want to play loki and he was like holy crap i thought i died so uh we went and found an outfit and and shot at a church man picked it up in post it was awesome so but long story short, yeah, he came after Ben. We shot Ben oh, wow. before him and stuff. So yeah, he wasn't helpful in getting Ben. But I never even I never would have asked him either. Like those guys are like friends and I would never want to be like, Hey man, what do you think Ben's thinking? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like so I wouldn't have I don't think I would have approached it that way. Even if he came to shoot with us, I wouldn't have said anything about Ben unless Matt was like, you know, did you reach out to Ben? And then I would be like, hmm. No. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it kind of worked out insanely well yeah. schedule wise. Um, Kevin, I got, I get so excited when you do a view askew movie like this because it means more Jason Lee. Oh yes. Who I just think is the funniest fucking guy on the planet. And I can't understand why the industry can't figure out how to use Jason Lee. Why are you the only one? that really gets to the heart of why Jason Lee is. So he's done some really funny things up to this point, but I feel like his, his talent is really being uh, undervalued and underused. I think he felt the same way. And that's why he walked away at a certain point. He hasn't acted in like four years. He went off to be a photographer. So when I called him about doing this, 
it was more like, um, uh, all right, you had a heart attack. Let's do this. Like it, <laughs> it, it was, it wasn't him going like, finally, somebody's called me about acting. He's kind of, he's, you know, kind of moved on from it. Like, uh, he lives out in Denton, Texas with his family and I, he just found a different life that he enjoys more. So, you know, I was put when he came out to shoot with us, I was pushing him toward filmmaking again, like actually directing because he wanted to make this movie when we were kids that was really beautiful, really lyrical. Um, and, you know, now he's like, I don't know it. it feels like Wes Anderson really inhabits that space. And I'm like, you don't you can't just because Wes Anderson makes movies don't mean you can't make a movie with kids in it too man you know what i'm saying like there are plenty of movies with kids in them so i was i was kind of trying to bring him back into the fold um even though he was acting for us but i was trying to bring him back into the fold as a filmmaker i'm like you're a photographer just shoot 24 frames a second and make that movie that you because back you know this is a movie he's talking about making back in 1995 so he you know i i hopefully people like see reboot and go oh shit let's try to get jason lee and hopefully Jason Lee's even up for that. I don't even know if he is, to be honest with you. Um, the camera but he loves crushes him. in the movie. Like for a guy who hadn't acted in four years, he we shot him on day one, and he was brilliant. And he's got he's Captain Ex- Exposition in the movie. He's the one that's got to send us on the journey and stuff like that. But he does it really well. And he also has to be since he's Brody Bruce, he's got to he's the voice of pop culture, right? So he's got to like tell us where he stands in 2019 pop culture and stuff. And he has very specific feelings about those Marvel movies. So it, it, <laughs> he, it, it was so beautiful. Like that scene I was, when we went to hall H at comic-con, I knew I'd play that scene. Cause I was like, number one, it's like holding up a mirror to the audience. Um, but number two, it is like the kind of like, here's all the, here's a truckload of pop culture references jokes. Let's see if they even played. And and they, they did. Cause I've only seen the movie with little audiences, like when Kevin and um, Adam watched it, or, you know, maybe the most amount of people who've watched it here at the house are like 10. So I've never had like a full theater experience. Um, taking the clips to hall H made me feel like right on. Like, yeah, I, 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 I thought so. Like I hoped so. I don't, you know, at one point somebody asked me, like, you in test screen? And I was like, you know, I'm kind of past that now. And and not in the way of, like, I'm above that and shit, but, like, I cut my shit mercilessly. Like, you know, this movie is an hour and 30 minutes with, like, 10 minutes of credits. And credits have more content in them. We keep the movie going during the credits and stuff. But I, I like it lean. Like, you know, the first cut of the movie was 150, and a bunch of fans were like, leave it. We'll love every second. I'm like, yeah, but... it. That's not the movie. It's got to be as tight as possible and stuff. So I, I'm, I'm, I try to keep shit really, really tight anyway. So all a test screening would do would be like, Hey man, that joke you thought was good doesn't work, but chances are I need it to get where I'm going anyway. So I'm like, well, I, I kind of like letting the chips fall where they may. Like that's how I started. Clerks, we didn't test screen clerks. You know what I'm saying? Like, Sure. We made it and it went to Sundance and we'd seen it with a few audiences. And then I made cuts afterwards based on having listened to it with an audience. But like test screening wasn't really a part of my world. We never test screened Tusk. You know, it's like, how do you test screen a movie like that? So <laughs> same thing here. I'm like, there's no point in test screening. Like I, I'm happy to live or die by what we 
put up there because I'm pretty content that it's like this is the best version of this movie that anyone was ever going to get. Like I, I'm, 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 I, you know, there's an expression in editing, kill your babies. I have no problem wiping out my babies. You know, <laughs> like, there's, if it, if it doesn't work, it goes away. Well, and clearly you believe in it because you're going to roadshow it. You know, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't be taking it to the people if you didn't fully believe in it. It's true. It's true. It'd be tough to you know spend six months on the road with a movie that nobody liked. Um, <laughs> I, I, I one of my favorite aspects of the red the red state roadshow tour we did was um, being able to watch it with the audience and like you know when you design these things as the writer even as the director you get such a short life with it the moment is so brief because the theatrical moment is incredibly brief and all of the attention is paid to the theatrical release so you know a movie comes and goes even the best movie the ones that make a lot of money come and go in a month um and as a creator of that shit you know that's the best part is like you, you went through all this trouble to share it with people to show them like look at this is the joke i was trying to tell for the last like five fucking years so the road show allows us to stretch the moment in time. Like we dictate the flow of, of the movie, how it rolls out. Like we, you know, some people bitch about the road shows cause they're like, Hey, it's too much. Or I got to wait till the movie gets here. So we figured out ways to make it work for everybody. Like October 15th and 17th fathom will sneak preview it. So you can, if you just want to see this fucking movie, you can go to a theater and see it. And then October 19th, me and Jay start the Reboot Roadshow Tour, which is us in taking Chicago. the movie from place to place, including Chicago. We still actually start in Jersey now. Starting. Oh, 20th, 20th is Chicago. We, that, we have to start. In, we had to start in New Jersey. Oh, I lied didn't want news. to start in your town. He I lied on the news. <laughs> I did want to, but come on, it's New Jersey. You know, we have the characters <laughs> are from New Jersey. So what happens is we go to a place um, like Chicago. And when the movie, we do the reboot roadshow date there, we do press while we're in town. And then that weekend, the movie opens in that area in theater. So it's kind of like a platform rollout. We just don't have the fucking loot to do, you know, it's on 2000 screens. Like, and also to be fair, I, I've seen a lot of movies that are like kind of in the same realm as us. Um, you know, kind of fall apart this summer, even with great marketing. Like the movies uh, nowadays tend to be, you know, for the big experience. That's why we don't see as many dramas. Um, and comedies also seem to be kind of breaking up a bit uh, in, in cin cinematically. I mean, look, we, you can go to fucking Netflix and Hulu and Amazon prime and watch a bunch of great stuff. And that's where drama has gone to thrive and multi parts and stuff. And now comedies even go in there to thrive. And the theatrical experience is being reserved mostly for like, show me spectacle, man. I want to see Avengers beating up each other and shit like that. So I, you know, I'm, I, I can't change that. And, you know, I'm always trying to game the system, like just try to make it work for me as much as possible. So for me, going out on the road with the movie, like answers two things. One, it stretches the moment. Like it makes, I can make that movie last as long as I want. Like it doesn't have to be over in one terrible fucking weekend or one glorious fucking month. So like I'll tour it from August, from October till January and then we'll pick up again or December and then we'll pick up again in January and tour it to March, man. And so 
that'll allow us to platform it, um, which is, you know, a cheaper way to advertise your movie by being in the actual place it's about to open and doing the press face to face as opposed to spending the money on a junket, which like we just honestly don't have. And at this stage of my career, like I, I swear to you, if somebody was like, here, man, we're outsiders, we'll give you $20 million to market this movie and open it wide. I just can't do it anymore. Like I, like, you know, where does that money go? Like at yeah. one point they were like, do we do any TV spots? And I'm like, who fucking watches TV? Like <laughs> name one person who's watching TV in real time that you know of. That's like, Hey, I saw your commercial for your movie. So like, there's, there are better ways, more effective ways to like market a movie like this. And, and this movie does have a built-in kind of audience and stuff. So we know we got that going for us. But in order for us to maximize beyond that audience, I just want to work smarter, not harder, you know? And, and, and unfortunately, we're fortunately like, I don't see it as hard work. Like I said to my wife the other day, I was like, I'm coming up on my vacation, man. She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, October to January. I don't have anything to do. And she's like, you're out of your mind. You're going to be touring the movie. I was like, that's not work. That's like going to a new place every day and feeling the positive results of, of like, here, this is the story I wanted to tell you. Remember all these characters? Oh my God. Like we're having a great, great time together. That will never feel like fucking work to me and stuff. So yeah, I get to, it, it's, it's smart. It combines what we've learned from touring the podcast for all these years, from touring Red State and from touring Jay and Silent Bob's super groovy cartoon movie back in the day. And it just puts us in a place where we're like, well, if we use all the brains we have about these things, it could probably be brought to bear on this thing. So the tour effectively pays back our investors. By the time we're done with the tour, people that put up the money for the movie get paid back. Like that's, that's in the, our business. That's crazy fucking unheard of. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's a win-win. It's, it's, so for me, I'm like, you know, I, I know there are people in the world, like there's a guy who writes for Forbes all the time and he hates my guts. And he always says it because he has to include um, red state when he talks about like openings and shit, red state, because we played at um, a radio city music hall on our opening of the red state tour. Um, we had this gigantic fucking per screen average number. And, you know, me and John Gordon, who is the producer of that movie going into red state, knowing that like we're doing this ourselves, we were looking for little ways to kind of game the system and shit. And so we figured out top 10, openings single day openings of all time all belong to disney movies they're all kids movies um all we had to do was find a theater big enough where we could sell enough tickets where we did, <laughs> we can wind up on that list and we weren't going gunning for number one we just needed to crack 10 so we looked and we were like oh shit radio city musical if we sell half of it that will give us a single day per screen average that will put us into the charts and you know, that's, I, I don't, I don't do this job to make money. I don't do this job to win Oscars. I do this job for little shit like that, where I'm like, did you know that one point Red State stood amongst a bunch of Disney movies as the single greatest first screen growth? And I think we're still in the top 10. And this dude at, at uh, Forbes, every time he has to write about, you know, limited engagement grosses, he gets mad and he go, you know, and always includes some parenthetical about, stupid kevin smith and his you know dumb red state because of him i have to include that otherwise this list would be perfect and stuff 
And it always like irks me because I'm like, buddy, you should be patting me on the back for figuring out a way to game the fucking system. I didn't got the money of Disney, nor do I have a fucking cartoon that will please a bunch of children. But by just thinking and being a bit clever, I wound up on a fucking pretty cool list. So for me, it's all about like, how do we maximize the things we know how to do and combine them to maximize profits? I can't win the game playing it the way everyone else does. If I just like, you know, here's 20 million in advertising. That means that our $10 million movie now costs $30 million. And in order to make 30 at the box office, we have to grow 60 million. And Jay and Silent Bob reboot is a wonderful film, but I ain't ever made a movie that grossed more than fucking 30 million bucks, maybe 40 if you include cop out and stuff. So at the end of the day, you got to be more clever, right? It's like, why would I just throw fucking good money after bad and hope that let's roll the dice. The only reason to do it at this stage of my life is for ego. Like, you know, where you're like, well, I want people to see the movie on billboards and I want people to see my trailer on TV. And I want people to feel like this is like a regular movie, like all other movies. But I'm past that at this stage of my life. I'm like, no, nah, I'm really more interested in getting the investors, their money back, because that means we'll get more money in the future and we get to do this again. And the fastest, quickest, most effective way to do that and guarantee they get their investment back is I take the movie out on tour, which also promotes the movie, which also helps us open the movie from region to region. So it's it requires a little more elbow grease and shit, but it never feels like work because you get to spend every night with this thing, with your child. And it's like you get to present your kid every night to a bunch of people you know are going to love the kid. I mean, yeah, maybe there's a few people like, oh, I would have done this differently. But I'm a VSQ fan, perhaps the world's biggest, definitely the first. So I know that like I made a movie that any view askew fan is probably going to fucking enjoy as well. So it's, it's not, if you can kids always game the system. There's no, <laughs> there's no point in playing it straight up if you don't have millions of, of fucking dollars, but that shouldn't leave you out of the fun. That's why I got into this in the first place. Like I saw Richard Linklater make Slacker and I was like, well, I don't have millions of dollars to make movies, but mm. neither did he. And that looks fucking fun, man. Like yeah. I watched these. To be fair, we're, we're four guys who created a podcast because we like movies and now we're talking to you on our podcast. You. So you we kind of took a page out of your book. You absolutely know the deal, man. It's like by any means necessary. Like, yes, we'd all like to do it as grandly as, as you know, we'd all like to have. The attention that like Quentin gets with Once Upon a Time in, in, in Hollywood. The fact that Sony would spend that much money to open, you know, a Quentin movie. That's he's become a brand. Um, it, you know, they know that by investing in that brand, they're going to make their money back. They don't mind spending as much as they do making the movie because he's proven time and time again. He can get people to come out, and put asses in seats and stuff like that. But just because I can't do that doesn't mean that I can't play as well. You know what I'm saying? We're not all Gretzky, but we can all shoot the puck. <laughs> and so you Kevin, just figure we... out how to shoot the puck the way you can and game the system in your favor, kids. Uh, Kevin, we would be remiss if we didn't get you on to talk about some pop culture stuff. Please um, do. People love g going to your podcasts and going to your live shows to get your insight into pop culture. And one topic that you bring up repeatedly uh, that I think has people the most fascinated, even more so than Marvel's Phase 4, even more so than your Star Wars Episode Nine visit. And believe me, if we had more time, we would get into that. You seem to have suggested the fact that the uh, Snyder Cut of Justice League exists. Yes. <laughs> 
Uh, what can you tell us about that? Because I am I'm so fascinated by the idea of a Snyder cut of Justice League. I wanted to sit down and write a book. Yes. Where I literally just speak to everyone who's involved in it. Uh, what is your experience with the Snyder Cut? I know you and Zach go way back, and and this clearly was a project that was, you know, worked on a lot by a lot of different people and changed from what we saw. What what, what do you know about it? What can you tell us about it? Um, n- I've not seen it firsthand, and also to be clear, like I I know Zach. We, but I'm not like it's not like we're fucking tight, son. You know what I'm saying? Like I've only. Sure been in a room with him maybe like three or four times very nice guy um but that being said i've spoken now to enough people um at various levels of production in that production um there is a snyder cut oh for sure (laughs) it's not a mythical beast it exists now it's not a finished movie by any stretch of the imagination there were things that went away from the story that didn't even, you know, that, that they shot that didn't wind up going into Viz effects or anything like that. So I would assume based on what I've been told that large sections of that Snyder cut are, you know, pre-Viz, um, lot of green screen. Like we're not talking a finished movie. When people hear Snyder cut in their heads, they think about like a DVD they've seen, you know, of an extended cut or something that's finished the 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 Snyder cut that again I haven't seen but the one I've heard everyone speak of was never a finished film it was a a movie that like people in production could watch and fill in the blanks but was certainly not meant for mass consumption now that being said this we live in a very savvy world now and and even the audience is incredibly savvy thanks to years i mean going as far back as peter jackson putting all of his behind the scenes stuff on dvds he raised an entire generation of filmmakers with those behind the scenes uh, videos people who learned how to do the job and learned how to uh, perform a craft in film based on watching those extras so i also know and 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 i i feel confident that the audience could handle that cut of the movie without being like, I think there's a common thought process probably within the studio. And again, this no studio had said this to me, but I would assume that they're like, we can't show people this. Yes, there is a Snyder cut, but no audience would be able to look at this and, and see what the director's intent was. Um, Sorry, I hung up the phone. That being said, <laughs> I disagree. That would seem like, you know, common wisdom because everyone always wants to put their best foot forward. But I think the audience now, particularly the audience that would, you know, consume the Snyder cut and discuss it at great lengths can watch a work print. They could watch a work in progress and fill in the blanks in their heads. I I think, you know, every studio likes to make money. Um, They do multiple incarnations of movies, on video all the time. This could just be one more of those. All they have to do is lend their audience a little more credence to be like, look, they'll get it. Like, and put up a bunch of fucking disclaimers, including one from Zach himself at the head of it going like, you know, uh, obviously the movie wasn't finished. 
but here's what we were thinking. You know, there's, there's definitely a way to do it. When we did cop out on home video, they had this thing called, what was it? Like M M M C M X M maximum, maximum movie, MMM maximum movie mode or something where essentially I was doing a commentary on screen while the movie was going on. And, right, you know, granted right. I'm a like chatty Kathy and stuff, so I could fill that time. But they could definitely shoot a version of that flick where, you know, they put him into it, explaining what would have went here, what went there. You know, there are long pockets in those movies where people aren't talking. So it's not like you'd have to stop the movie necessarily for him to explain it. Um, and if he's speaking over a bunch of storyboards or previs shots, you know, to fill in the blanks, I, I think, A, that would get a fuck ton of press. Which B oh, yeah. leads to a fuck ton of sales. Um, C, you're keeping your fan base happy and fed, giving them what they want. Um, D, nobody's going to Monday morning quarterback this because let's be honest, most of the people at the top have already turned over in the studio system. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Tajahara just left. So it's not even like, well, that's egg on his face. You know what I'm saying? Like, Nobody will be hold, held accountable for the movie. I think that's probably the, the studio. If I was the studio and I thought like a studio, that would be my biggest concern. They're going to think we're the assholes here for ruining Zach's vision. But I would submit to the court that I don't think anybody's there who was there when those movies were being made. Right. right. So at this yeah. point, you know, people could be like, hey, I'm with you. They should have dot, dot, dot. <laughs> And maybe right, they don't yeah. want to do that politically or something like that. But I, I've never seen a movie act political when, when money could be made. And right. <laughs> I think there's a lot of money could be made from this. I mean, heavens, I was in uh, San Diego and I saw uh, bus stop ads. Uh, oh, yeah. And more money was spent. Like, so, I, I you know, I, I just it baffles me. I mean, I, again, I, I guess I understand on one level that they don't want to. They don't want people Monday morning quarterbacking them. But at the same time, most of those cats have moved on and there's a lot of money to be made from this. And think about it. If you do this, that opens up a, a completely different secondary market where maybe that's a thing other filmmakers could do where it's like, hey, man, you want to see my version of the movie? It's going to have a lot of rough shit in it. But like, you know, the same way that at one point, nobody in this business thought that anybody cared about cut footage, deleted scenes, or behind-the-scenes documentaries, and then DVD proved that completely wrong. The audience is savvy enough, once they've consumed the movie as the filmmaker is intended, if the filmmaker is remotely comfortable with this, put out the work print, man. There's, I'll pay for it all over again. <laughs> Particularly in this case, because the man clearly had a vision. The vision that was completely interrupted. Uh, well, for me, it's just it's really cool to hear how many different people you were able to call and bring back for reboot that we're going to be able to get this sort of you know high school class reunion. But is there anyone that you call that just straight up said no for one reason or another? Um, let me see. Who? Um, yeah, definitely, there were people that said no, but not like fuck you. Um, we never got a no from. Will Ferrell, but I didn't wind up using Agent Will and Holly in the story. He was in one scene, but then within <laughs> production, I wound up 
cutting the scene while we were shooting. I was like, you know what? We were actually doing <laughs> a version of the scene where we were shooting a backdrop blank so that we could pick Will up in Los Angeles <laughs> on a green screen somewhere down the road. And then while we were in the middle of shooting that scene, the editor and me just kicked in. And I was like, you know what? Like, I know where the story is right now and what precedes this and what we've shot and how good it is. This scene's probably going to go away. So let's stop. And we we saved half a day because I was like, I'm not going to use this entire sequence. And so we never had to bother Will. We never, you know, but they were trying to work out dates, but it never came down to a yes or no because we were like, oh, we don't need that anymore. Um, let me see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, there, yes. There's definitely one person who couldn't come back for the party. Um, and when you and I don't want to, I like this person and they had no, the reason they couldn't come back had nothing to do with them. Um, they're part of something larger than themselves. So that cat couldn't come back. Um, and wrote me a very like, moving heartbroken like note about why he couldn't and how he wished he did hmm. now I'm mentally going through all of strikes back <laughs> yeah. all right uh kevin you, you, know, you kevin. know you never really know what joke is going to stick over the years what lines are going to get quoted back at you um i was at the world premiere of argo uh, at the Toronto Film Festival, and they inter- introduce uh, Ben Affleck to come out, uh, directorial effort, huge movie, and someone shouts from the audience, you're the bomb in Phantoms. Oh, genius. <laughs> he and was I even, fucking... even before we'd stopped talking, and then he reiterated it um, since we've gotten back together, he was always like, you're fans, bro. They're everywhere. <laughs> He's going, at one point he was like, I know why you're still in business, because there's not a day in my life goes by somebody doesn't scream at me. I was the bomb and phantoms. <laughs> so, so Kevin, what, what is the origin of that joke? Please. Did you come up with it? Was it Ben's idea? I want to know. I need that was to know. my, that was my joke because uh, he did phantoms while we were doing, we did chasing Amy. And then I think he went off and did phantoms right before we did dogma. If I remember the <laughs> schedule correctly. And yeah. it was like, uh, it was the first time that he felt respected in Miramax because they offered him another job that I didn't, I wasn't like here, my friend's going to be in the movie. Um, but like, he was like, uh, you know, it's a Dean Koontz thriller. <laughs> and, uh, and he, you know, he was had a, happy to be there with like Peter O'Toole and stuff. But, you know, he was at one point he's like, I don't know if I'm doing my best work. And so when we saw the movie, I was like, you're, you're fucking great, dude. <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's like, you're the bomb in this movie. So when we, <laughs> years later, when I wrote Strike Back, I just wrote that in the script to like make him laugh. And I honestly didn't think that it would go much further. I didn't even think it'd make the final cut. Like it was, cause it only, it was written into the scene when we're at the, uh, at the computer. <laughs> Um, in the beginning of the movie, but then okay, half like improv the high five. Though, Phantoms like a motherfucker. Mother- yes. <laughs> but when he, when he, we, we call it back when we're on the set of Goodwill hunting, when Jason, like right before we, that, and that was Jason Muse right before we leave the scene. Yeah. Jason goes, I'm going to scream that he was the bomb in, in Phantoms. I was like, that's funny. Yes. Do that. <laughs> 
So right as we did, it was, you know, we were in our coverage and shit and we were doing us first. And then we turned around on Ben and Matt. And so Jason, it's one of my favorite moments at Strike Back because his face is so pot committed where he like turns from the police or the security guards and looks at Ben with such intensity and fucking points at him like he's like he's Donald Sutherland in an invasion of the body snatchers and spits out like so earnestly, Affleck, you the bomb and phantoms, yo. That's a private, that's that? just a dopey personal joke that has really traveled far. It's, it's been a lot of circuit chasing Amy, so. 22 years now. I love <laughs> After it. one of the greatest lines ever when he says, I don't know, Will. What are we going to do? That's him. That was him. And <laughs> I remember being sauce. irritated that day being like, I said like, dude, that's that's not how you played it in the movie. He goes, well, this ain't Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even have hunting a hooker season. today. <laughs> All right, uh, Kevin, I'm going to end on this. Um, I uh, want to give you major credit because I feel like you before there was ever an MCU, your films were talking about these characters over and over again in your movies. Um, and I think one of the greatest scenes ever uh, is the Stanley cameo in Mallrats when Jason and him are talking, and Stanley goes down that amazing story that you know that uh, that TS was telling him this to say about the you know the the long lost love of his life, and it's a it's a one of the greatest scenes ever, and. You were always kind of on the forefront of that. I mean, like, I mean, listen, those those characters were always existing in comics, sure, but like your movies kind of brought them to life for me. And so Stan Lee being in that moment at the in Mallrats, that that's my that's my introduction to what Stan Lee looked like. I mean, I, I was I was what twelve when that movie came out. So um, that was you know you were a big part of my love of these characters in comic books. So. I just envisioned some hypothetical nerdy question here that I, I hope you can answer. Um, I think it'd be funny if Silent Bob was dropped into a scene in the MCU somehow and he could go on a monologue. Like he could actually break out like Chasing Amy style, whatever he wants to say in a scene. What do you think Silent Bob would think about the MCU if he were dropped into a scene? Um, it would seem incredibly familiar yeah. since everybody knows one another and stuff. Um, he would be well prepared after standing next to Jay for quite some time, but I would, uh, if they were, if they were like, look, we will put you in your character in one scene with any Marvel character, who would it be? I, of course, naturally I would want to go like, Oh my God, Iron Man, Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. But to honor the character, you would probably have to put him in a scene with Groot. Oh, yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh one guy God. says one thing, one guy says nothing. <laughs> Hell of a conversation. Somebody get James Gunn on the phone. That needs to happen in Guardians 3. A convenience store on a planet somewhere. Just them <laughs> leaning against a wall. That's for us. That's for us fan fictioneers. Hey, Tobias Fuke is in uh, Infinity War, so anything could happen. That's true, man. Yeah. Good point. That's true. Very true. The, uh, I tell you, yeah. man, that that moment, like st putting Stan in Mallrats, oh, was oh, the oh. like it paid dividends my entire career. Not only does it make me twenty five years later look fucking smart as shit, <laughs> it yep. made a friend of Stan Lee. I got to be friends with Stan Lee for like a good portion of of my life and stuff. And, and then years later, like, you know, when we put him in mall rats, he, he was Stan Lee, 
but he wasn't Stan Lee. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't yeah. the Stan Lee your mom even knows and stuff. Right. He was the Stan Lee that Dave. comic book people knew. So yeah. putting him in that movie, you were introducing him at that point to some cats who'd never heard of him. And they'd heard of the concept of like Spider-Man. And you're like, this is the guy that created Spider-Man. And so there are a bunch of people like, oh, right on. You know, you got to in introduce Stan Lee to a generation maybe wasn't that familiar with him. Years later, when they do that Captain Marvel scene, it's exactly oh. what he does for me. He introduces me to a generation of kids may not be familiar with my bullshit just by sticking that mall rat script up there with my name on it and stuff. And I know he stand and write it and stuff. Of course, that's Ryan and Anna and Kevin Feige and whatnot. But still, that... Because because we had that moment in our movie, that moment existed in that movie, and it couldn't have come for me at a better time in my life or career. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the time in my career. I'm 25 years in. I could stand to be introduced to some kids at this point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. To have somebody be like, oh, these there's, there's a movie once, came out a long time ago, blah, blah, blah. So on a professional level, that's great. But on a personal level... Like, come on, man. Like, you look at me, look at my career, look at the shit I talk about, look what I stand for. That means more to me than winning a fucking Oscar. Like, if they want to give me yeah. an Oscar one day for like, you know, hey, he's been around long enough. Believe me, I'll fucking take it and it'll be great. <laughs> but clearly, I'm not trying for that sort of shit. This takes care of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is something that I'm truly grateful for, that I feel is a landmark achievement in my life you know some people be like wait a second earning an oscar means you did something and i'm like getting referenced in a marvel movie i had to have done fucking something you know what i'm saying <laughs> like maybe it's not the thing they give out oscars for but shit like you realize the amount of dominoes that had to fall and the things that had to go right in order for that joke to work and play in that moment and that means like they solidified for me at a time when you know, I'm in my life trying to figure out, like, oh, was it all worth it? Do I matter? Fucking blah, blah, blah. Those cats reminded me, like, you're part of the fabric, buddy. Yep. Like, and that that meant everything. So that came from knowing Stan. Like, that came from that exact moment in Mall, Mall Rats. And so, uh, you know, I'll always be glad on a professional level. Naturally, as I said, it still pays dividends to this day. But on a personal yeah. level, man, I got to meet one of the greatest human beings I probably ever met. You know what I'm saying? Like he was a good man, like a real good man. And I know more about his life than most fans. And so when I say he was a good man, yeah, like I know what he had to go through to be a good man. And that dude like tub thumped for the arts forever. You know what I'm saying? Like never, there, there was only one thing we ever saw from him remember that one video they put out in like the last few months of his life when that kia fucking person took control where yeah. he ever said anything remotely negative remember i remember he said something like i'll sue somebody and that yeah. just never sounded like stan and as we now know that wasn't stan that was stan right. under right. fucking duress so the stan i knew and we all knew was always so positive i'm mean, think of it can you name somebody like who's always positive, like sooner or later, man, even the best of us get down in the dumps and shit. But this guy, even when they were beating on him personally, like, you know, in his private life, when he was going through what he went through in the final year of his life, he still was able to get out there and turn it on 
for the people. Now, that, you know, some people might be like, well, if he has to turn it on, it's not authentic. I'm like, that just makes it an even more beautiful gesture. Like, I, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, we did the uh, Legion M put together the handprint ceremony for Stan at the Chinese theater. You know, they don't like it's one thing. Get your star on the Walk of Fame. That's very limited. But the handprints at the Chinese, that's a very rarefied club. So when they were pulling this off for him, I was like, A, that's a miracle. B, it is completely fucking justified because this guy (laughs) is a fucking movie star at this point and is responsible for all this entertainment and joy and shit. So, you know, naturally it was no brainer. Then Joni passed away few days a week maybe before that ceremony was supposed to happen so i assumed they're going to move the ceremony call it off there's no way he just lost the not just the love of his life but his life partner for 50 60 70 years at that point they've been together and he didn't cancel he showed up and turned it on for everybody because he knew people were there waiting because right he couldn't he couldn't not be stan lee for them you know it's like Greatest creation Stan Lee ever came up with was himself, Stan Lee. Wow. Yeah. And man, he he wore it when when we needed it. Like and never even when he you know didn't have time for it. Even when it maybe in his life he had some shit going on that like, you know, fuck, I don't want to talk about Spider-Man one more time. I'm dealing with the real here. He would turn it on, man, because he always knew that. Every comic book was some kid's first comic book. Every experience with Marvel was some kid's first experience and some adult's first experience with Marvel as well. So I I miss him. But man, oh, man, I was lucky enough to spend the time with him. I did. That's for sure. And we got him in the flick. We included him in the in the flick and a little homage as well. That really just ends the movie quite nicely. Yeah, and Sean's going to wrap us up, but I was going to mention that. People, make sure you stay, uh, when you see the film, there's a great Stanley moment. Uh, I do want to mention that RebootRoadShow.com, you can get your tickets for the roadshow. Um, as Kevin mentioned, it'll be on Fathom Events uh, in October as well. But October, to me, the Q&A. October 15th and 17th, the only, I, I want to point this out. The 17th, I'm going to go to this as well. Um, they're doing Strike Back and Reboot back to back. So you watch Jane Silent Bob strike back and then it goes right into Jane Silent Bob reboot. So I, 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 that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. So people go to road, roadshow reboot, dot com and, um, and no, it's reboot. Is it reboot roadshow.com? Reboot roadshow. Yep. And go there, get your tickets. Uh, my wife and I are going. It's going to be awesome. I saw the Red State one. It's one of the coolest experiences you can have, as Kevin mentioned. It's, it puts you right there with him in the crowd asking questions. It's awesome. But go ahead, and Sean. Go ahead and wrap us up, buddy. Uh, Kevin, uh, this is just basically, you know, we're a new-ish podcast. Um, and people who come to listen to us know that we just love talking film and filmmaking and storytelling with some of the best in the business. And anyone who's been listening to Real Blend from day one knows that you are absolutely one of our bucket list storytellers that we couldn't wait to spend time with. So I, I mean, on behalf of the guys, I just need to say thank you so much. You, you are uh, a, a talker who is in demand from all your different podcast networks and all the places that you go to. So the fact that you took some time to just talk to us about your, your films and reboot in general and share that amazing story about uh, Kevin and Ben was, it meant everything to us. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah not a problem. Man. Let's, next time let's do it in person. 
Good. We'll definitely do yeah. it in person. And by, by the way, shout out to Kevin's daughter, who gives a phenomenal performance in the movie, by the way. She's a, a, the emotional, grounded element of the film, in my opinion. So shout out to her. She's amazing. Yeah, so, she Kevin, did. thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for saying that. All right. Talk to you soon, uh, Kevin. Bye, thank kids. You. Film forever. Part of me feels like we are uh, transitioning out of the summer blockbuster season. Yes, we have Hobbs and Shaw coming to theaters, but we're able to see a bunch of trailers recently for uh, some really exciting films that are going to be coming in the fall, Uh, especially as Toronto starts to announce its lineup. Venice is going to announce its lineup uh, soon. Telluride will always be a big surprise. We were able to see a trailer this week uh, that the three of us have been highly anticipating. Uh, Netflix's latest uh, film it by Martin Scorsese. That's weird to say, right? That's a little bit strange to say the new Martin Scorsese going to Netflix, but that's a sign of the times. The Irishman uh, dropped its first full trailer after that Super Bowl tease that was basically just text and the bullet sort of uh, flying through the air. We got to see the de-aging effects of um, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, uh, Al Pacino. Actually, it was just De Niro who was de-aged. Is that correct? Was anyone else de-aged in that? In the, in the trailer, I only saw De Niro. Wouldn't Pesci, wouldn't Pesci have been de-aged oh, in that? Pesci might but have been. Because oh, he's, he's, not talking, he, he's, he's in, in the, the scene. scene. He's talking to a de-aged De Niro. He is but do we ever scene. see Pesci's de-aged face? Yeah. I think he is. If you look because, at what Pesci he, looks he like nowadays. He cuts to Pesci and he's like, oh, he talks a lot, doesn't he? One yeah. thing I will say about the de-aging of this movie is it's not as extreme as I thought it would be. Right. Like, like it, it, De Niro still looks like an older person. Well, I mean, keep in it, mind, thirty like it, it's supposed to take right. place 30 years ago. 30 years ago, it was still like Casino exactly. De Niro, Goodfellas De Niro. That's what it reminded me of. So like, I, think, I think there was something, and Gabe and I were discussing this uh, also uh, when we first signed on. It's jarring, definitely, seeing the de-aging. But I... I, I the one thing I will give it credit for, and to Jake's point just now about the 30 years thing, it's it's true. Like It's not that much of a difference in regards to – they don't look that much younger. I mean it's not like – it's, it's not like we're seeing – I think Jake brought this up in, in an article he read. Uh, I'll let Jake explain this, but it's not like seeing like young Brando uh, at, in Godfather 2 right. compared to – Compared to right. Brando, it's it's much right. uh, less jarring than that. The article that I read uh, from Forbes that Kevin's talking about, uh, which is really interesting because I am very excited about the Irishman and I thought the trailer looked fantastic. But the article brings up the point that uh, the de aging process was unnecessary and that every other studio was right to pass on paying 160 million dollars for uh, a period of era mafia film. And it brought up the very interesting point that De Niro won an Oscar for playing a younger version of a character that someone else played, obviously it being Vito Corleone and Marlon Brando, um, so that potentially we're missing out on other actors getting the chance to do this. Um, he also brought up the point that he's glad that we didn't see a de-aged Meryl Streep for Mamma Mia 2. Uh, the only thing that concerns me about the de-aging, because I actually thought it looked pretty good, um, is that I feel like uh, there's a ticking clock on it. And this year, we're going to see it this year. I think by the time it comes out in November, it's going to look even better because I'm sure they're still working on it. I think it's going to look great. But I, I mean, the thing about Scorsese films is that they are timeless. And I worry about what this is going to look like in 20 or 30 years as this technology gets better. Are we going to look back at this movie in 20 or 30 years and go like, oh, that looked really cool when it came out, but it doesn't look so good anymore. Does it put a ticking clock on this movie? Maybe, but but I'll tell you what my reaction to the trailer is that the de-aging is the least interesting thing about it. Now that I know the material. Right. And 
So first off, the first bit of goosebumps I got was just realizing that there's actually a movie that's going to exist that has Pacino and oh. De Niro and Pesci. When you heard uh, Pesci's voice, didn't you just get goosebumps? Oh yeah, dude, that that, was, that that voice is the best part of the trailer. It's a time Pesci's machine voice for me. Is I would say, how long has it been? Has it been Too since long. the Good Shepherd? Probably, yeah. I don't think he's done anything since then. Uh-huh. I'll say this, and I think that we we can all agree on this: that Pacino and De Niro being on screen is uh. just—I I would pay so much money to watch that in general. But like, you go back to the heat sequence at the diner; it's like those two powerhouses sharing screen time. Like, it, that's that's what you go. Yeah, to but that it, movie it also it, it needs to be under the guise of someone that knows what they're doing because we've gotten them in a movie together. That was great, and then we've was also gotten them in a movie. Kill, yeah, we've kill. also gotten them in a movie together that wasn't so great. So them being together on screen doesn't necessarily equate to greatness. They needed to be. For they sure. need to be guided by someone that knows what the hell they're doing. Um, but it's Scorsese, yes. And, and so, but it's Scorsese, and it's and it's him doing two topics that I didn't really even understand that this movie dealt with, which is Hoffa and the labor union, um, which is steeped in mafia culture because of just the way that dirty politics in New York controlled everything at that point. Um, and Kennedy, the Kennedy assassination and how Robert and John F. Kennedy messed with Hoffa, um, that I didn't understand that this story was going. And that's part of my fault. I didn't research it, but I am crazy intrigued to see Scorsese tell that right. side of history to so delve into that with that do you cast. Think that, I mean, the whole deal with, uh, the character that, that De Niro plays, the Irishman is that yeah. a lot of his stories are just that they're stories. I mean, he has, oh. cl- he has laid claim to, um, killing Hoffa himself. Yeah. And, uh, he has claimed not necessarily to have pulled the trigger, but to have been involved. I think he even claimed to have transported the guns that killed Kennedy. Right. So yes. do they, does, he does Scorsese, a yes. Does Scorsese treat, his stories as God, like, are we going to see his stories? And, and even further, I mean, he's known for such great voiceovers. Do you think we're going to get those classic Scorsese voiceovers where maybe we hear the same story, maybe from different perspectives? Cause all, cause I mean, that, that particular character, there's no proof that he really did any of this. So I'll be curious to see how Scorsese treats that. I will also be very curious. Yeah. Because, um, he's not been one to do revisionist history the way Tarantino, you right. know, does or has done at least twice now at this point. Um, but also Scorsese, unless he's doing a full-blown documentary, is not rooting everything. Like the Goodfellas movie was about, a, in large part, uh, there was a, a, an angle of the Lathansa heist, which is a really big crime story from New York, but it wasn't about that yeah. in general. And I kind of think that the Irishman might follow yeah. that blueprint. I mean, even, even I guess you it. could argue Hugo was a particular version of revisionist history because he dealt yeah. with a fictional story that involved actual people. Right. Yeah, I I mean, here's the thing, like Scorsese is like just that trailer starting and getting the feel and the vibe. It just reminded me of just the way his movies make me feel. Um, there's just something special about the way a Scorsese film uh, immerses an audience member. and It's very specific. And I think uh, I rewatched Wolf of Wall Street on the on the plane the other day, which is just that movie so moves, much energy, man. Movie, it man. moves. Yeah. It's so well done. Um, but he, you got to think about it. He's probably one of the most diverse filmmakers ever. I mean, the guy, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street compared to Goodfellas, compared to Raging Bull, compared to Taxi Driver, compared to Mean Streets, compared to Hugo. I mean, the guy has range, but yeah. he also has a style. He also has a very specific style. Yeah. And I think that I believe this movie is being shot on 35 millimeter, which I'm excited about. I need to double check that Two, uh, Netflix at the end of the trailer is saying like they usually do, it will be in select theaters. 
So I'm curious if uh, they're going to go a Roma route, which I'm hoping they do, because we've had this discussion a lot on the show about Netflix and um, the idea of movie theaters still giving the option to audiences to see a film, yet I understand everybody doesn't have access to a movie theater where they might live. Um, my hope is that they do a Roma schedule here where they release Irishmen in... Is it Irishman or Irishmen? Man. Man. Well, yeah, Irishman. I wonder, yeah, I wonder because, why. Because that's what they called um, De Niro's character. He was the Irishman. The Irishman. And oh, in fact, okay. that line the from the, the trailer... Uh, is the line of the book upon which this movie is based. The book is called uh, I Heard You Paint Houses. Yeah. Which is such mm. a great name for a book. Let's go to the movies that are in theaters this week, including one I've never even heard of. What is Luce? Anyone of it? Luce? L-U-C-E? Anyone? Oh, that's the movie with uh, Octavia Spencer, isn't it? Octavia Spencer and Tim Roth and uh, Naomi Watts. Uh, you could tell me. I have no idea. I believe I believe I have not seen it, but uh, yes. but I, I believe it is, and it's uh, I believe it's about uh, if I'm correct, and if not, Gabe just cut this out. Naomi Watts and Tim Roth have a child that is accused of something in school by his teacher, who is Octavia Spencer, and based on the trailer, you don't know whether or not uh, this child actually committed this crime or whatever it is, or if this teacher Octavia Spencer just has it out for him and it's falsely accusing him. Okay, it's kind of amazing to me that there are movies currently that that actors are spending a lot of time working on that no one has any idea what it is. Like this movie is coming to theaters, no, and those are all names that you know. I have no clue what this. Movie is. Doesn't that sound like a good premise? Sure, sounds if that fine. is in fact the premise. And I do this for a living. Like I should know what this is. I have no idea what it is. I do know what Hobbs and Shaw is. Hobbs and Shaw is the. Uh, Ninth chapter in the Fast and Furious franchise, the first official spinoff. I will let everybody know that we are going to have David Leach on the show next week. So we're going to hold off on our review for this film until we can uh, actually get into spoilers for the film. So go check uh, that out this weekend, and then you guys can play along with us next week as we give spoilers. Can we at least give star ratings, Gabe? How about if we give star ratings out of five? No? You want to wait? Let's wait. Let's wait. All right, fair enough. Okay, so next week, director David Leach, and we will talk in-depth about Hobbs Shaw. Because we told you last week we were going to talk in-depth about Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we're going to get into the spoiler portion of the uh, review. So if, for whatever reason, you have not yet seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, first off, What are you doing with your life? First off, yes, how dare you? Secondly, how dare you? (laughs) I love that joke. Um... Jake, you you gave this a perfect five stars. Yeah. You, you where do you rank this in terms of your Tarantino's? Oh, uh, what's funny is that I would give it a, a, a perfect score. Um, it's my favorite movie so far this year, but okay. it's still like middle of the ground Tarantino for me. If so that's not, how many five star movies he's uh, given? Yes. You? Yes. Yeah. Wow, um, that's amazing. You know what's right, so what funny is it about this one is that when this movie ended, there was this because you guys know this, and this is one of the downsides of seeing a movie so early is that uh, people that work for the studio instantly rush oh. up to you and want to know what what you think. Yeah, and there has never been a movie that has existed at least this year where I needed a second to just to breathe yeah. to really kind of understand. And I remember that the person from the studio came up and was like, "Dude, like, what did you think?" Because we were some of the first people that saw, it, so they wanted to know our reaction. And there was just this moment where I went, like, I don't know. I think I worship this movie, but I just, I'm not sure. And with every second that passed, and it's still happening up to this point, I love it more and more. It's it's so, it's, you know, it's like 
and we've discussed this and I've read it in other places, so I can't take credit for it, but it's really like if you took every movie that Tarantino made, put it in a blender, and then poured it into a cup, uh, that's that's what this movie is. It's it really it's funny that it's his next to last work if he does only go to ten because it's it's the work of someone who's getting ready to say goodbye. It's it's a very um, like look back at his career and what does this all mean and and did I did what I do uh, mean anything? Will it stay around? Will it stand the test of time? It's a very reflective, quiet work. From a guy not known for reflective and quiet work, and it's 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 unlike anything he's ever done, and I mean that in the best way possible. Yeah, I'm gonna second that also in that it's it's so unlike his his last two films specifically, um, and it's I I think people have noticed a disconnect amongst the three of us that you guys like Django and Bastards way more than I do. Even I did a ranking on the YouTube. For Cinema Blend, where I ranked Tarantino's ten films, <laughs> waka waka, um, and at number nine I had uh, Inglorious Bastards. Did, but did you were, see that a, a poll came out recently in which critics picked, I guess as a group, uh, Inglorious Bastards as his best film? See, that's insanity. Even if you love Bastards, there's, it's just not better than Pulp Fiction. It can't be considered better. Than I'm Pulp not saying Fiction. I agree with them because I don't, but I just thought that was inter- interesting. I could – here's the thing. So Pulp Fiction is my favorite Tarantino film. I think it's the best movie he's ever made. I do think Bastards – there could be an argument made that it is his best. I, I actually I understand the argument I of like actually, best directed maybe. I, I just think that if you actually sat down with Bastards, there is a legitimate argument to be made that it is his best work. And here's the thing. I – We'll always side with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Um, but I think Bastards, I think even Tarantino would say Bastards is his best movie if, if like he was flat out asked that question. He still thinks, uh, at least at the time of Django, that it has the best monologue he's ever written, which was the opening scene with uh, Christoph Waltz and the Milk Farmer. So I don't think it's that hard to argue that Bastards is his best work. Do it's you think it opinion. would be frustrating from him to think also that he peaked that early like I, he, no. maybe he doesn't want to believe that Pulp Fiction is his best because then in his opinion he's never going to be able to top himself like what a great I, point. Okay, as, what a, a, great as point. a creative filmmaker you don't want to believe that your earliest work because Jake in the in, in the interview he almost you know not bristled at the idea that you know he said I was still he learning things it. on Pulp Fiction yeah. you know like he, did, he I dismissed didn't know. looking back at it longingly yeah, but he was like, uh, he goes, I, I didn't even really know how to run a set, you know, it, then. And you made the comment, you were like, and look what came out of you not knowing what you were doing. You know, that, this largely. This is the result of us each having listened to this interview probably oh, 20 times a piece so that we can turn it back verbatim. Dude, I put I, it on I in still, the background all the time. <laughs> I still don't believe it happens. So I actually, I actually <laughs> I fall asleep it, to it. I put it on sometimes because like it blows my mind. But I mean, Bastards though, I do think is a perfect movie. Um, and I think that Bastards is. I need to rewatch it. It is. It's genuinely one of the greatest pieces of work he's ever been involved in. But if you think about Bastards, it's the crescendo. It's the buildup. Yeah. Um, it starts in this incredibly slow, very like chill moment with um not chill but a very like intense moment with this milk farmer and Kristoff and that dialogue that plays back and forth and then it just turns into this movie and it's the ups and downs of Quentin's movies that I find fascinating and like to me Bastards might be his most emotional film 
besides Django. Oh, I mean, see, I think it, Once is. I think I agree. I, I actually think Once uh, is, think is his most emotional film. Oh, I'm see with Bastards. I'm all in on Shoshana's character the whole time. Her journey, her revenge, uh, even B- Kill Bill. I, I I don't know. That's a hard thing to mention, but I think Kill Bill is just as emotional, and so is Django. Django is one of the greatest love stories ever. And be, I, I mean, yeah, people talk about Django because it's so violent and brutal, but at the end of the day, it's about a guy trying to get his, his girl back um, and the lengths he goes for that. So I think Tarantino, yeah, I think it's fat. I, think, I do think Bastards could be made an argument. I think he well, could. I'm going to give, I gave Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood four and a half stars. The critique that I cannot get behind from anybody are people who watch it and say nothing happens. Like that is crazy to me because I think so much happens um, between the margins. Like maybe it's not a an action driven film, but it's some of the deepest character work Tarantino has ever done. I mean, you learn so much about these actors in the quiet, small moments uh, of their scenes, especially DiCaprio. And that's why I, God, God, I can't believe this is something I can say out loud, but like there's a quote for me praising DiCaprio's performance uh, in Once Upon a Time advertising. Uh, but it, I truly believe it's the best performance of his career. And 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 just like Leo uh, and Brad to a certain extent, but, but specifically Quentin, it's not a movie any of them could have made until this point's in their career. Like, I think the things that they bring, the experience that they bring in this industry uh, and as people give weight to what happens to the characters uh, in this movie. Like, if you asked Leo to play that scene between Rick and the little girl and and how far along in his career he is and, and the fear that he feels that, that it's about to dry up, looking at an, uh, an ingenue who's coming in and won't break character and how different their approaches are. Leo couldn't have played that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or he would have, he could have, but it wouldn't be nearly as impactful as it is now. So the, all of that, like sometimes projects come together at the right time. It's just, it's a magic hour of a filmmaker trying to tell a certain story or work in certain material with a cast that fits. And that's what I think happened here with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He not only got incredible actors and amazing performers, but they were also, to, they were able to, uh, interpret this material for Tarantino at a time where it worked amazingly well for everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think one of the biggest stars of this film is Robert Richardson. And I, I, and I want to give a shout out to the cinematography in this movie. And I saw it again on Monday in 35 millimeter in, uh, in DC and all right, we're wrapping up, but uh, I I'll say that Robert Richardson's uh, uh, cinematography is amazing. Uh, Do yourself a favor there's one scene I want to point out real fast, Gabe, if you don't mind. Uh, it's a it's scene that Game and I geeked out about um, after we first saw it. Uh, there's a sequence where we, I think they're shooting Lancer, which is the um, the movie or the show that Timothy Oliphant is a part of. And DiCaprio's playing the, the heavy, right? The bad guy. And it's this incredible sequence where Tarantino just drops you into the scene, fully edited and produced as if we're watching the movie within the movie. Um, there's no like cut out to a director saying cut or action. Tarantino just puts you inside the scene. And the brilliance of that moment is DiCaprio and Alifon are at this table and DiCaprio's in a super emotional moment and the camera does the uh, very similar shot from Inglorious Bastards where it goes around from the table behind Kristoff's character and then before we actually go below the boards to see where the people are hiding. Um, so in this particular scene, uh, uh, DiCaprio messes up his dialogue 
And instead of Quentin coming out and showing the director on that fake set yelling cut, Richardson resets the camera within our movie. Like it's, it was like, it was so meta. And I, and to, to this day, I still don't fully comprehend like, because it's one of the coolest like geeky things I've ever seen that we're resetting a track shot that was within a fake movie, but we're not being told it's within the fake movie. It's so interesting to me. Did you um, listen to the audio that I sent you? No, I haven't heard it yet. I haven't heard. I know you interviewed Richardson. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I asked him about that scene. What does he say? I, 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 I just want to say this, Gabe. I know we're running out of time. When I asked him about that scene, he turned around and he did this during the entire interview. Everything I asked him, he asked me why I'm asking that. So when I asked him about that scene, he said, you tell me, why are why did that scene stand out to you? How come that scene is important to you? Why do you want to discuss it? Wow. And I mapped out why it was important to me. And he was like, right on. That's exactly what we were trying to do. <laughs> we wanted to do. And then he started break. Dude, the, the first 10 minutes of my 20 minutes with Robert Richardson was him asking me about why I live in North Carolina. Am I married? How old are my kids? What's wow. it like raising two boys? Like he was grilling me the entire time. And finally I was like, can we get into your movie? And like, Gabe's going to allow this on the podcast? Oh, I don't, I don't think we can run on the No, it was a bad phone interview. It was like a, it was just a phone. Oh. The audio is not that good. But I sent you guys the audio to listen to it because I asked him about that scene and I described it the exact same way. I was like, we didn't know that we were in the show. And then we realized we're in the show when you took us out of it. And he was like, tell me, you tell me. Why was that scene important to you? Yeah. Like, how come it stood out? And I was like, oh, I'm not prepared to answer yeah. questions. I'm only prepared to ask them <laughs> and, to you. And I know we're moving on, but from a pure cinematography <laughs> standpoint, if you can, please see the movie in 35. Oh, yeah. Um, he shot 35. Or 70 16, if you're in Chicago. Or 70. Um, but just pay attention to that scene, because that is one of the coolest reset shots I've ever seen. And like, I remember Gabe and I were, like, freaking out about it. And to Gabe's credit, do yourself a favor and listen to... Al Pacino's dialogue very closely in the beginning of the film when he yeah. tells Rick Dalton that if you continue playing the heavy, people are going to psychologically think that that's all you can do and they're not going to be able to separate that bad guy character from a new character you're playing. And Gabe had the brilliant thought of, was Quentin kind of commenting on himself? Was he saying, okay, people walk into a Quentin Tarantino movie and they expect a certain level of movie psychologically, because you've ingrained that in the audience's mind. So I think Jake had a great experience when he watched the first time where he reset his expectations halfway through because it wasn't the film that Quentin normally uh, uh, brings to the table. So I, Gabe and I, I think Gabe gets credit for this, think that Pacino is kind of Tarantino commenting on our perspective of how his movies play. Notice how Gabe doesn't rap us when you're complimenting him. Right. Like, right. No, but I, I, but I wanted to give Gabe credit for that because that was actually <laughs> something that changed my entire perspective on the movie right. was that line. We talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago that we want to play a different version of the blend game. Uh, we're going to do this once a month between now and the end of the year. We're going to pick a decade um, and we're going to try to discuss uh, our favorite, the best, our favorite uh, movies of that particular decade and it's going to get more challenging as we go. Although the 60s, believe me, was plenty challenging. Um, we're starting with the 60s. Mind you, there's amazing films from the 40s and 50s. I think while the three of us are pretty up to speed on on a lot of films, I think our, our knowledge goes deep back to the 60s. If you got us into the 50s, we'd, we might be struggling a little bit. Maybe we'd be picking some, some boilerplate stuff. 
when we opened it up to the 60s and we played hashtag 60s blend, people who played along on social media had great picks. Yeah, a wide the- range of picks too. Like sometimes we do yes. these and we get just, you know, two or three of the same movie. Yep. Wide range. To the point where a lot of their suggestions made me rethink yeah. what I was going with. Um, uh, and I thought I had mine pretty set uh, in stone, but then I heard a couple of other choices. I was like, oh God, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I should stick with mine. So we're doing... Um, this is hashtag 60s blend. No, no pressure, but whenever I texted Gabe my choice earlier today, his response was, aka, the only choice. Oh, all right. Well, all right. Then, Jake, you get to go first. I'm going first. No pressure. <laughs> yes. um, I, sorry, Gabe. Didn't mean to throw, throw you under the bus. <laughs> um, so my choice is 2001, uh, uh, A Space Odyssey. See? Just because yeah. I, I think this movie, maybe more than any other movie, represents me evolving as a a fan of film because I mean this is a movie that like I didn't grow up as a kid watching 2001 you know I didn't really discover it till near the end of high school whenever I bought a used collection of uh, Stanley Kubrick DVDs I don't know if you remember it was like a white box it was it was it was so old I don't even think it went up to eyes wide shut it was a white Warner Brothers box that you know and it had a bunch of them that was the first time I'd ever seen it and I remember like Thinking it was cool, but as a like as a high school senior, like trying to convince myself that I liked it more than I actually did, uh, and then you know I probably watched it maybe like once a year as we yes that that one that you're holding up right now that was part I of the Stanley Kubrick collection. Boxes. Yes, like, for people who are, can't see it, yeah, it's like it has like a little black line that you snap yes. open. It's really cool. And yeah. over the last let's call it like twelve or thirteen years, I've watched it probably at least once a year, and then last year for the first time saw it in seventy millimeter on the big screen here in Chicago. And it has become like one of my all-time favorite films, and up to a point where I feel like every time I watch it, I'm watching a completely different film. I mean, imagine going back to your like one of your favorite dishes of food, yet somehow every time you bite into it, it tastes completely different, but still awesome. And that's somehow what Stanley Kubrick does. I mean, I read a book last year, which was a really fantastic book about like the making of it and the story behind it is fascinating, and and it, it everything it did for for film. Uh, still ripples uh, to today, and I just don't think that there's any other choice that uh, that I mean there are a lot obviously a lot of great films that came out in that decade, but none deserve uh, my my pick more than 2001. God, and how do we? I mean, it's really hard to argue against that film, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a seminal work of art sure. uh, that again, as you say, changes almost every time you go back to revisit it. And uh, some I want to believe it was Spencer Perry who works over at Coming Soon was like. He pointed out that there are effects that still blow his mind, you know, even though it's a film that's more than 50 years old. Yeah. Um, or, or 50 years old. Is that what it is? What did no, you yeah. see, no CGI in there, yeah. man. It's all miniatures and mats. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. That's yeah. Ridiculous. Well, that, that, and that's why you got to appreciate Nolan, um, who's keeping up that type of filmmaking. Like Interstellar, there's no green screen. Right. So like they, like that is a big deal. Like that 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 film, 2001, uh, is influencing filmmakers today who have the ability to use CGI um, very easily. But Nolan and Chazelle and all these guys that are doing stuff Tarantino, in space and yeah. Tarantino, they, I mean, they want stuff in camera because ultimately it looks better. And then at the end of the day, 2001 still holds up because it's real. Yeah, Kevin, like you're, what you're watching is real. Did you pick 2001? I did not, no. You're up. My ultimate pick is Psycho. Um, God, because so How do you argue against that? Because Psycho, to me, um, that's the one movie that I wish I could go back 
and have seen with an audience in this, oh. in that, in that, in that year that it opened up. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm never, I remember seeing, like, I remember hearing great stories. I think this, this was even in the, the Anthony Hopkins Hitchcock movie where like, didn't they like not let people in the theater after a certain time? Yes. Like you would not be able to enter. And I, I and I, I feel like, like I was thinking about this the other day. If you're a filmmaker and you release your movie, could you imagine like walking into a theater, seeing someone come in late, seeing someone on their phone texting, seeing someone not paying attention to your film? And I think that like I would just love to have experienced that movie from the perspective of just sitting in a theater, not knowing what it was like Jaws would have been so cool. Right. Yeah. The first time Jaws, around the I'm exorcist, like, usually yeah. horror films. Yeah. And Psycho, though, there's so many things about Psycho that I admire. I mean, killing Janet Lee off. What does she die? Like 30 minutes into the movie. Um, the shower sequence. I don't know how many edits are in that scene. But think about how violent that scene comes across, yet how little violence he shows. Mm -hmm. And you think about it's all done through clever editing, clever sound effects, clever um, style. Uh, I still think one of the greatest shots in the history of cinema is looking up at the shower head. Um, yeah. And I believe they built like a larger um, piece so that the camera could look up without water. Uh, entering the lens. It still feels like an impossible shot. Yeah. I don't, I don't care how many times it. I see it. I have no I clue how he gets it. Neither do I. And yeah. I think that like, like psycho is so it's just, well, it's just so ex well executed performance wise. Everyone's phenomenal in that film. Yeah. And I think that every single aspect of that movie, it's so far ahead of its time. Um, and it is a film that still, I can pop on and it still scares the hell out of me. And it still puts me on that intense, like, I sit in that shower scene hoping that Janet Lee will somehow get out of it, right? Like, like there's something like, like a part of me, part of my mind is going, can this change? And I feel like a filmmaker who's able to design a scene that suspends your disbelief to a point where you forget what's going to, not that you forget what's going to happen, well, but maybe, maybe you hope it changes, but... But I'll, nowadays I'll too, uh, real fast, nowadays we're, we're also attuned to when something happens in a story... We're always like, all right, they're gonna, they'll figure out some way to get around this. Yeah. But the audience back then, when they watched the main character get killed, I can't imagine how they thought, like, what the hell does a movie right. do now? <laughs> like, imagine watching a Mission Impossible movie and Tom Cruise dies in the first 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. You'd spend the exactly. whole movie going, okay, how do they bring him back? And that's kind of how I came to this decision was, yeah. okay, if I were to be able to be transported back to the 60s and I could have sat in a film for the first time with that real audience – which one would I have liked to have seen the first time? Like, it's funny because if I were to give that perspective to um, the 70s, which I'm not going to choose this, but to sit in the theater and see Star Wars for the first time before it actually became Star Wars. Sure. Like, what, what was that like? And I've talked to so many people about what that feeling was like, right? Like seeing it in 77, what that sat down. What was it like to see Star Wars on screen for the first time? Yeah. We are... Not we're not jaded, but we are used to certain special effects with our t with our lifetimes that we will never know what that was like. I think you my know, closest was The Matrix, right? And then because exactly. I was not writing about film, uh, you know, example. Uh, full time, yeah. And I knew it was coming, but I didn't know what it was. Right? Exactly, Matrix is a I great. Remember, even the marketing campaign is what, what is, the, is Matrix? the Matrix? Right. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, yeah. that's probably the closest that we will ever come to a revolutionary film like that hitting us for the first time and being able to say, hey, we were in that theater. We saw that. I hope not. No, I no, 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 no. I'm saying, no. but can you, 
Can you think of another film besides The Matrix that you've seen in your lifetime that that was that revolutionary that it was you got to see it in its first run yeah. before it became iconic? Avatar. No, Avatar. <laughs> but I'm honestly that's I'm a kidding, that's I'm a kind of yeah, legit question. Yeah. Is there another movie besides The Matrix that has had like you think about Impact, you think about Star Wars, you think about Psycho, you think about 2001? Can I, I make an argument for one? Sure. Just because of its impact, arguably on a special effects before Matrix, Jurassic yeah. Park. Oh, 100%. Oh, no, no. That's, that's a But great then again, example. I was also like, I remember seeing it in theaters, but I was also five. So I wasn't sitting there going, oh, this <laughs> is going to change the way they do special <laughs> but effects. Matrix, we were all old enough to understand. <laughs> this was different. I, little that, Jake. Well, this guy Spielberg can direct. <laughs> yeah. He knows what right, he's so, doing. <laughs> to, to, to end, though, uh, I Psycho. I like that. But I do think that 2001 ultimately was probably the more influential film from the 60s. I just think that yeah, but we're Psycho's doing favorites. A, a film that I would go back and watch over and over again. That's My fair. pick, um, there were a lot of films from the 60s that I understand I appreciate for what they did. Uh, both of your picks absolutely qualify as things that I... I recognize how those things, you know, change the medium of storytelling, uh, of filmmaking, 2001 especially, my God, where would we be without it? Um, but I had to choose a film that I just love, uh, and it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Ah, oh, great movie. That movie is a, That's a great warm choice. blanket that I can just put on any single time. And I think it, I've made it relatively clear, you know, in various discussions over the years, I love movie stars. <laughs> I talked about Clooney. Last week, this is why you like Hollywood because Butch Cassidy has a lot, a lot of there's a lot of like um feeling sure. of that, you know what Absolutely. I mean? In, in Tarantino's movie, yep. Uh, they just didn't get better than Paul Newman and Robert Redford, yep. like at that time. And I think a lot of times when they got paired, you know, in other films, uh, it was people chasing the chemistry that those two displayed in uh, in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, just amazing characters. Chemistry. We talk about chemistry a lot in films and and movies that try to um, they they artificially try to get to it and then but when people have it and it just works, it's so it's you want to bottle it and and those two had it in spades. But I mean, on top of that, it's one of the best screenplays of all time, of all time. and so. Uh, while I don't think that it changed the way that movies are made and I don't think that it, you know, even had a lasting impact the way that some of the other movies that people mentioned from Psycho to Sound of Music, you know, uh, The Graduate, films that really had a cultural impact. If I were looking at a, a wall of movies from the 60s and, and we're going to pick one off the list, you know, and just pop it into the DVD player, it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid for me. Uh, it's costly. a great choice. Because I love Newman. I love Redford. Uh, and the two of them together were, were, were genius. God, I love when all three of us pick three different movies. It so rarely but, happens. But that'll happen for the decades, I think. It's going to be interesting because, like, I think 90s. See, I, I have my, the rest of, ooh. I think I know Jake's maybe, 90s, but, like, but like I do think this is going to yeah, be a fun I exercise. The re- I have the rest of my. When did Not Another Teen Movie come out? Uh, that was 2003. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so, yeah, so, we yeah. so we got our right. thousands. We got our thousands. How, Audience picks. How are we doing, two, uh, so are we going to do 2000s and 2010s? How are yes. we doing that? Yeah, December okay, cool. will be right. 2010s. Yeah. Okay. yeah, all right. Audience pick. Shelby Jones, uh, she also picked Psycho. 
Carrie Kay said Sound of Music. Uh, TJ Winfield said Cool Hand Luke. But Paul Newman in the 60s was just as cool oh, as Paul Newman in the it. 70s. Uh, and Sam Lenz says The Graduate. Amazing choice. Uh, we will come back to 70s Blend at the end of August. But people can start submitting their picks for that one now if you want yeah. to. Use hashtag 70s Blend and start the conversation going. That one is going to be freaking yeah. hard to do. Uh, for next week. You can reach out on Twitter using hashtag Kevin Costner blend. Yeah, that is going to be. I love Costner. I like Costner. Graceland. Love. I like that movie. Me too. And I have a great Costner junket uh, or set visit story that I'll be able to share with you guys next week. So please remind me. Uh, Let's see. We all Um, know Sean's pick on that, right? Man of Steel. Next week he plays. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> we almost got out of here clean. Why would you do this? Okay, so go to uh, social media. Use hashtag Kevin Costner Blend. Uh, you can also let us know your pick via email at realblend at cinemablend.com. Um, you can also leave us a review there. And next week we will be back with the uh, uh, David Leach interview and um, our review of Hobbs and Shaw. So until then, you guys can listen to us at. You can follow us at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Real Blend. Uh, send us emails. I want to hear about the uh, Kevin Smith interview. Let us know what you guys think. And um, until then, so that Kevin can go answer his door. Dunkirk. Oscar, stop, man. <laughs>Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.